1: All right, yet another team now in this summer of seismic upheaval in the NBA, a team whose offseason was universally lauded despite the fact that they probably got a lot worse for this season. And to talk about the OKC Thunders offseason and their prospects going forward, ESPN's Royce Young. How you doing, man?
2: I'm good, Nate. I like the way that you categorize that because it's, it's funny the paradox that we all are in of universally applauding a team for an incredible off season while they clearly got worse <laughs> it's just it's funny how that all works
1: yeah I mean, and despite having all these assets and despite doing what i thought was the right thing there's no guarantee that they're going to get back to a level anytime soon uh within these next five years even that they might have been at had they just maintained the, the team that they had and tried to build around it, the, the resources for that were pretty limited uh but uh, of course they got all those assets from the clippers they got more from the rockets for moving paul george and russell westbrook what is kind of the overall zeitgeist now in oklahoma city after these trades i mean the uh, talking heads like me who are uh, love talking about assets and draft picks uh, were enamored with these moves but uh, locally what's the thought
2: Yeah, it's like, it's kind of been like this process of, uh, of grief, I think, in Oklahoma City, Nate. Like, you know, for the most part, initially, specifically with the Paul George trade, that was the, that was like the shock moment because nobody saw that coming. Um, not even the people that are kind of, um, very close to the team saw that coming. That was, that was, uh, incredibly out of left field. And, you know, there, there was some kind of understanding among people that, you know, there was a, a shelf life on the current iteration of the Thunder that, you know, with Paul George, uh, it wasn't like he signed a lifetime contract, and plus there was you know some concerns about future spending. So it wasn't like there, there wasn't this kind of delusional element where people just figured Paul George and Russell Westbrook are going to play together until they're forty years old and they'll retire, and basketball will be great for ten year, ten more years in Oklahoma City. People weren't th- seeing that. They they knew that there was an expiration date on on this group, but they didn't see it coming then. So once Paul George was traded, then it was like that was oh no, what's next? And in the logical conclusion at that point was, was Russell Westbrook. And, and that was the more, you know, raw, visceral, emotional thing. You know, the Paul George thing was kind of the, the shock and the what just happened moment. And then, Kind of processing Russell Westbrook getting traded, the guy that was planted his flag in Oklahoma City, and was supposed to to be uh, in OKC for the duration of his career. That was that was the more emotional part of it. But now I think people are kind of uh, going through the process of understanding. Look, this is what was necessary at a certain point. You 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 can't just say that you're a 47 win team going out in the first round. Um, you know, I think, I think the expectations for people in Oklahoma are greatness. They want great NBA teams. That's what they were brought up on. That's what the Durant Westbrook Harden teams were. And I think that they want that again. And I think the organization wants that again. And in order to do that, you have to make these sort of painful moves to do it. Now, all that to be said, as the season's about to start, Nate, and this is a season preview, um, I you know people are kind of trying to talk themselves into this team while also simultaneously like kind of withholding that emotional investment in it, which is is this sort of awkward place to be in, is to say, hey, I think that this Thunder team could kind of be okay. They got some good players: Chris Paul, Danilo Gallinari, Stephen Adams. While also saying, I don't want to become emotionally invested in this team whatsoever because all those guys might get traded. Um, and and re- and the real future of this team I'm supposed to care about is like 2023, 2024. So it's it's sort of this. Awkward crossroads for Thunder fans right now to feel like the team could be okay while also uh, really trying to kind of withhold judgment and, and expectation for a few more years.
1: Yeah, and I think the biggest reason why they might be okay is the acquisition of Chris Paul. And I thought for that trade for the Rockets was an interesting one. Clearly, Russell Westbrook as a regular season player is a lot better than Chris Paul. I thought that maybe due to the fit, due to what I see as superior defense from Chris Paul, at least when it really mattered, his ability to shoot it, uh, that maybe he was a better option in the playoffs if healthy, which, you know, that, that was always a, a question mark, but maybe he gave a little more upside. Now, with Paul in Oklahoma City, do you think that there's any way that he is going to still be able to provide that close-to-star production uh, over the course of the season? Or is he just at a whole other point in his career and it, they're just going to move him to a, a somewhere else as soon as possible?
2: Look, I think I think the expectation for a lot of people that are close to Chris Paul and within the Thunder expect a very productive, good season for Chris Paul. And quite honestly, I think the, the reason for it... Being being nate is just that the better chris paul plays the more (laughs) likely he is to get what he wants which is to leave right (laughs) Like, like if he plays well and he shows that he's still got something left in the tank then the thunder can get then somebody will hit the price tag that the thunder have set on a trade and chris paul will get to go wherever he wants to go and so i think it's kind of like this you know wink wink you know you know, I'll do right by you, you do right by me thing. So, like, I, I, you know, I think that that's kind of the harsh reality there. Um Now, that that could put the Thunder in an awkward position. Like, let's just hypothetically say that they get off to, like, a 20-10 and 10 start and they're playing really good basketball and this team looks kind of enjoyable and fun and there's sort of this, you know, resilient aspect to them of, like, wow, they're not going anywhere, they're still okay. Um That's going to put the front office in an awkward position because I think you might then start to see fans get emotionally invested in the group and then to just pull the plug on it would be different. Difficult, and that'd be kind of a hard sell, I think, for fans that are already sort of dealing with the the Westbrook and George departures. So, um, but I, again, I think I think the expectation is that Chris Paul is going to be a really good player. When you mentioned the critical element there, Nate, it's when he's been healthy. When Chris Paul's yeah. healthy, he's a good player and he's a productive player. And and once once Paul George was gone, you know, I think one of the things that the Thunder looked at is and and look, I think Russell Westbrook's a better player than Chris Paul, but in terms of the team element and what you're getting uh, within in the context of a group, I think the Thunder looked at it and says, okay, Russell Westbrook with this group, chris paul with this group which one is one significantly better than the other if you play out an 82 game regular season i mean take russell westbrook and put it on this team how many wins did the thunder get i don't know you know 45 47 you know maybe on an optimistic scale how many do they get with chris paul 42 43 i don't know like you know it's like i I think that they were kind of asking themselves how much worse are we really with chris paul versus russell westbrook
1: yeah i think also you mentioned the price that the team has set for paul and i think some people listening this, they're like well that's insane he's got 3 years left at, at you know that 35% max uh with 8% raises, you know how could they expect to get anything back for him and I don't know that they necessarily do more just that it doesn't make sense for them to give up assets to get off of him right. and so unless he has created positive trade value for himself or unless he were willing to take an absolutely unprecedented buyout which as the head of the players association don't <laughs> see him doing uh you know, if he really is going to be stuck there for some time unless a team like say Miami comes along and is actually willing to give some kind of positive assets or at least something that they could spin as positive assets uh, in terms of either salary relief or or, you know at least a, a nominal pick uh to move him and they don't really have that impetus number one because the lottery rules have changed but number two because uh they have all these draft picks from other teams that they have plenty of assets already to rebuild. They don't have to be bad. They don't have that in itself. So, hey, why not keep them around? And, you know, even if you're winning 38 games or something like that, I mean, that's better than winning 25 games without Paul and having to pay to get
2: off of it. Yeah, I think that's a great summary of it because, you know, I think a lot of people have said, well, if you're going to trade Chris Paul, you might have to attach a pick to it. Like, look, that ain't happening. Like the Thunder are not in the business right now of just dumping for the sake of dumping and giving away what, what they view to be their most valuable commodities right now, which is draft picks. That's how they're, That's how they, they are collecting as many of them as possible, as we can obviously see. And they're not going to be in the business of just giving them away just to get off of a contract. And plus they're, they're virtually under the luxury tax. Now they, they can, they can easily adjust to be under it. And that's going to be a priority. And Chris Paul's contract is not a, is not factoring in to, to doing that. So, um, yeah, I mean like they, they really don't have, they're not, they're not incentivized to trade Chris Paul outside of a disgruntled star situation, which it, the more disgruntled Chris Paul is, the less likely he is to be traded again. I mean, it's like this catch 22 because nobody's going to yeah. want him because he's already, he's already kind of uh, damaged goods, so to speak, you know, with the, with the kind of the perception a lot of people have with him. So like the thunder are completely content to wait. And, and I, I think that, you know, there is kind of this people keep asking me all the time, Nate, like, when do you think Chris Paul's going to December 15th? Right. That's when, right. Cause everybody kind of knows that's the date like okay free agents can be traded Um, but like I think kind of the truth may be that no I think he might play out this whole season in Oklahoma City you know the Thunder the Thunder are willing to talk and willing to listen and that's the message they want teams to believe in terms of kind of creating this artificial leverage for a player that doesn't have a lot of trade value so they want people to believe no we're completely content to hold on to the guy but I think that is there is some truth to that I think that they're completely content to hold on to him for this entire season
1: yeah and he I mean they don't have to play that him that many minutes because they've got Schroeder still Uh who actually I think Schroeder might be a more logical trade candidate uh than Chris Paul uh they've got shea Gilgis alexander who they're trying to groom and they probably want him to learn from chris paul uh and you know paul is uh can be back in the position that he likes of mentor mentee uh where you know it's clear that shea has to learn from him uh as opposed to being a, a marriage of equals that supposedly didn't go as well in houston um yeah what, what do you think uh, about sure i mean it, it, he they picked him up to kind of be this hybrid starter slash backup point guard there he had a rough year was not able to carry some of of their bench units uh, last year which is what they're hoping for they had to rejigger the rotation uh so that they always had one of westbrook or, or george on the floor but the hope would be that given what the point guard market was this year that his uh, a little over 15 million per season might be movable uh because again you know shea is, is clearly going to be their guy at the one well should i am i too hasty in saying that do they see shea as a two or, or is he just the long-term one for sure
2: i think he's their long-term one and i and i think you you know that kind of holds Whole collection of point guards is is a little bit of an uncomfortable situation for the Thunder, and that's something they're going to have to kind of resolve. Um, I, I think the reality is is that they're not going to play the season with all three. Now Shea Gilgis Alexander is highly unlikely to be traded. Um, he's somebody that that they they were adamant to get in the return for Paul George, and they view as as sort of a, a building block piece as they go forward. Um, you know, the, you talk to people around the league, as I'm sure you have too, Nate. You know, there's a lot of optimism about the upside of Shea Gilgis Alexander. Uh, some people feel like he's he's a possible future all-star. So, you know, the Thunder don't want to stunt his growth whatsoever. I think having Chris Paul alongside is something they view as a is a very positive thing to sort of, you know, because they play a little bit in a, in a similar manner. They're kind of stop and start guys. They control pace. Um, they're not, you know, that, that high energy A to B player like Russell Westbrook necessarily, That but they're more probing, uh, more cerebral type of pick and roll point guards. But I do think they view him as a future point guard. Now, th- in today's NBA, you don't want to kind of pigeonhole a guy into that. At one position, so I do yeah. think that they 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 feel strongly about giving uh, Gilgis Alexander some time off the ball. But Schroeder is kind of that that kind of elephant in the room. There, he he's the guy because he's also somebody that's not going to be completely content with seeing his um you know seeing his uh his time on the floor completely reduced for the sake of having a young player play um you know he had his moments I think last year kind of as that sixth man he you know there were some positive points in it that, you know he he quite frankly won the Thunder a few games but as you mentioned um it was a little bit inconsistent he struggled um specifically like uh you know second half of the season as, as kind of the bench units began to struggle more and more so um you know, I, I think that he's somebody, and, and plus, you could see him sort of growing a little bit dissatisfied with roles So, uh, you, know, you talk about the Thunder kind of adjusting to try to, to kind of restructure some of their salary issues going forward. Schroeder, to me, is, is you know somebody I would be um, expecting to get moved at some point throughout the year, just uh, as the Thunder probably you know view him as somebody that they might be able to get something in return for, uh, maybe not nothing significant, but uh, you move fifteen million dollars off your books, and uh, you know you keep a happy locker room
1: yeah and maybe they could just get try to get someone uh, for for a team that needs a point guard just some kind of an option on the wing maybe even if it's an overpaid one uh because uh, again the three much like when kevin durant left is looking a little bit rough here which uh we'll talk about do you what do you see Gilgis alexander's upside as being do you see him as as a future all-star or kind of more into the solid future starter range
2: yeah, I mean look, I mean, you know, obviously with the uh the caveat of, you know, it's one season and a lot of times year year one to two you see a lot of changes in players and then specifically even two year two to three is when you kind of really get a handle on where their trajectory is. Um, you know, I, I think that when he entered the league he was seen I don't know if, I don't know if project is the right word, but he was definitely seen as sort of a raw player. And I think that he exceeded expectations as a rookie last year, um, specifically in the, in the postseason. I mean, he was fantastic. He might, I think you could honestly make a case. He might have been at, for large points of the series, uh, against the Warriors. He was the Clippers best player. I mean, he, he, he shot the three well. He controlled the offense. He plays great defense. Um, so I, look, I, I, think that, you know, we're, we might be kind of looking at, at, at his, at his potential kind of in that, in that prism. I think that he's, he's borderline all-star there's there's certain areas of his game that he's going to have to improve upon and I think for any player to kind of make that leap Nate so much of it is just the consistency element like it can't be you know one one night you know a Monday night against you know the uh, whoever against the Dallas Mavericks you know you're you're 21 9 and 7 and you play efficiently and you play great and then two nights later you're playing you know the San Antonio Spurs and it's nine points on three of ten shooting and six turnovers like you can't just have these sort of flat Pan moments. You've got to consistently produce and, and for a player like Shea Gilgis Alexander, that those high mark moments are there and they're going to be there because he's an extremely talented player, but can he kind of make himself, uh, consistently productive on a night in and night out basis and to me that's going to be the process for him to kind of become that all-star level player
1: yeah it's interesting you mentioned the consistency because the reason i have him a little bit below there and obviously he had a great rookie season for any rookie to contribute positively to a playoff level team it is a very good production when you're talking about a, a guy who was one and done like him but other than just his size i don't see the one thing he does that's just like amazing i think he's a solid passer i think he's a solid finisher but he's not a great athlete it's a lot more kind of craft finishes scoop shots he gets to his mid-ranger and i think that's he can use his size as he gets stronger he's going to be able to create in that area he's got some decent handled not like unbelievable breaking guys ankles again you know he doesn't have an unbelievable first step he's more of a patient kind of older type of player he's getting to where he can shoot the standstill three a little bit better but you know i don't know if he's going to get to the point where he's banging those off the dribble really being a threat forcing the defense out on the floor so i think he could be really solid in a lot of areas defensively i'm hard pressed to identify that one skill that's necessarily going to push him into all-star area unless the shooting really gets a lot better uh that's probably the one way for me or maybe just you know again guys who are good at everything but not great at one thing can get underrated at at times, but I, I, th- I see him as a, a very solid foundational piece and an effective starter even on a rookie contract these next few years but yeah if I had to pick does he make an all-star team in his career or not I would probably guess no uh, on that but you know obviously it's very early in his career could certainly be wrong yeah
2: I think he's more likely to make an all-defense team than he is to to make an all-star team and you know that doesn't necessarily mean that he's like not a great player but you know I think I agree with you I I don't know that there's that one standout thing you know again we're saying this with he's played one season in the NBA and, and he could come back next season where you're like whoa wow he does that you know he got better at that um, and a lot of players do that sort of thing quite often sometimes it's year three to four where you see that sort of um, that progression but um, i do think the one area that you could see kind of that elite caliber potential is on the defensive end he could, just because of the the kind of the length that he possesses i think he's got really good instincts um you, you mentioned that he's not like this supreme athlete uh, but look I, I don't know that i don't know that that's a prerequisite to be a great defensive player in the nba i don't think you have to be a great athlete I think so much of it is is sort of your intelligence your feel your instincts and I think I think he's got those things so I could see him being sort of an elite defensive player but um yeah there's not there's not one thing on the offensive end it's not not a bad thing just to be a good player I mean like yeah he can he he, he does if you're well-rounded and you're really really good like that's that's not such a bad thing I mean Russell Westbrook the guy that he's going to kind of you know so to speak um replace I mean he was high watermark in in a lot in a couple areas, like where it's like, whoa, he's like way way good at those, and he's also had like some some significant flaws that we all recognized and understood. So, um, you know, it doesn't have to just all be one way.
1: What do you think about uh, Danilo Gallinari's prospects uh, for this year? Uh, another potential trade can as well going into free agency. He was, you know, it, I think, it was good for that the Thunder were able to get him, but it seemed like part of the reason he was included was more uh, salary balance. Mm-hmm. But you know, he's certainly an important player, and he's really. They're only true for. Uh, on the roster who's established right now playing at a rotation level um yeah i mean i think if things go well he could obviously stick around and maybe they could even try and re-sign him but uh, although for what i hear about him he kind of wants to uh be in a little bit more of a warm climate you know miami la type of thing that's kind of more his deal Mm -hmm. but uh but yeah i I, do you think he could get moved uh with this group again or they think they're planning to hold on to
2: him yeah and again i think he kind of falls into that that category nato of, You know where where do things stand, and how awkward is it going to be to trade him? Because you know, come come trade deadline time, if the Thunder are in a postseason spot and they're in that mix, and they're kind of exceeding expectations, you know, Gallinari is a, a very good player when he's been healthy. He's he was extremely productive for the Clippers last season. Shoots the ball beautifully. He you know he's a he's a better free throw player, I think, than a lot of people give him credit for. Oh um, yeah,
1: it's it's ridiculous yeah. how often he gets, and he's not like he's not just this incredible athlete anymore either, but he just when he goes to the basket he's not a great finisher but yet he always draws fouls if you're a fan of the opposing team you got to just be like how do we keep following this yeah. guy like this is ridiculous like he's he's not like gonna dunk on us if we don't follow him he
2: he falls into my floppy hair theory Nate which is the, the <laughs> floppier your hair the more fouls you draw like I mean it's like when you got it's like you got that shaky hair out there the ref sees the uh, hair shake what, around they're was, like that's was, gotta uh, be a foul was
1: Manu the original Manu <laughs> yes. Ginobili the progenitor yeah. of that theory yeah,
2: probably so like if your hair's shaking around you got to have taken contact somewhere there, right? I mean, that's... Yeah,
1: yeah. uh, When he he shaved his head uh, due to going bald, it really, like, hurt hurt his free throw rate.
2: That'd be an interesting... I feel like Chris Herring's got to get on that one. Like, that feels like a Chris (laughs) Herring story. Correlation between long hair and free throw rate or something. Um, But yeah, I mean, like, when it comes down to it, he's an expiring contract, and that doesn't hold a lot of value for a rebuilding team in terms of... uh, You know, I, I see it highly unlikely that the Thunder view Danilo Gallinari as a as a player that they want to re-sign and kind of continue to build around, I just you know with the kind of with the transitional point that they're in, I, I, it seems to me that they they view him more as an asset than they do um, as somebody that they want to re-sign and and use at a later point. So you know, I, I, he's somebody that could be an extremely valuable piece to a contending team come February where somebody's looking around and saying man you know that what we need that we need that type of player on our team in a postseason run and we're willing to give up a first-round pick for that and you know you the the landscape can change quite significantly come that point where you know I I go back a lot to thinking about Toronto and Marcus Gasol where it was like that's the guy we got to get that like that's you didn't see if we sat here in September of last year we would have never said that the Raptors are going to go out and go get mark gasol but that's what they identified as something that they needed to make a postseason run and so um danilo Gallinari could kind of maybe be that same sort of logical piece for another team and if the thunder can get you know if the price tag can get hit i you know really i think what it is nate is is that almost everybody on the roster is available at the right price and i think that that's the way that the thunder are going to approach it
1: yeah and to me that right price on December 15th is if you can get a first round pick, I would go ahead and do mm-hmm. it because it, it, he, this is his age 31 season, played what was basically a career high 68 games. So the, the most that he'd played in the last six seasons, I'd been right around 60 games in his healthy seasons in Denver. He was 21 the year before, even last year, uh, that 68, you know, is not that many. Then you throw in the age, then you throw in the fact that he shot 43% from downtown last year. He's playing it in the East. He could have even been an all-star candidate uh and that is uh, he had shot 38 percent one other time in the last six years and you know i think he's a good shooter but you know that's basically like six percent above where he had been at any other point in his career so that's going to regress He, you mentioned the free throw rate he's still a master at that and he shoots an incredible percentage 90 percent. but he's also you know as you that's just going to decline it as you mm-hmm. get older so his defense is on the wane as well so i think while he still has this great patina of how well he did last year with the clippers i think you move him before he potentially gets hurt again, or just suffers a, a performance decline, and then you also have the advantage in theory that you get two more months of production from him if you move him early. That that would be my thought. If the I, I think I wouldn't be like, oh, we're we're the offers will get better at the trade deadline because I kind of see him as like a ticking time bomb. Yeah, that's a good ways. point.
2: Yeah, that's good. And plus, I mean, I, I think you can quickly identify four or five teams that could say like, yeah, that guy could help us. <laughs> you know, I mean, like good teams out there that that would that maybe would would uh, strongly consider uh, giving up a first round pick and it. And I think on the surface it might feel like that's a lot for that guy, but if you get a productive Danilo Gallinari, that you know he, he could con- he could conceivably be the type of player that that helps you advance one more round than you otherwise would have. I mean, he's he's a really good player that that spaces the floor and can play in multiple different types of lineups. So, um, you know, I, I think that's a I think that's a well said point that maybe maybe sooner than later is is something that the Thunder ought to consider.
1: You know what I would love his fit would be, uh, in Portland. Now, that's I the team I, that actually... I
2: come back to that. I was going to mention them and that's the team I come back to over and over again is that he makes a lot of sense for the Trailblazers, especially with the way that their offseason went, Nate. I mean, they, with, with what they lost, I mean, they, they've added a few different things, but they're a little more defensively minded now. I think, um, they don't, they don't, they, they didn't have the, you know, they they were seen as this shooting team, right, with McCollum and Lillard, but they really weren't. I mean, they they weren't a a highbrow yeah. shooting team outside of two great shooters. So I think kind of spreading their shooting out would make them a lot more dangerous of an offensive team.
1: Yeah, they have, they're gonna have a lot of pressure to duplicate last year's performance getting to the west finals and as we know their bracket was a little easier and they oftentimes don't get out to amazing starts so there could be a little pressure there i mean milwaukee is another team although they're they're a little poor on first round picks going forward uh, that they owe but yeah i mean th- there are definitely some teams out there for sure but i think the uh,
2: thunder might be yeah. willing to take future ones you know and, th- and i think that yeah. i think that that's kind of you know people might be seeing it as oh they want a 2020 first round pick i think that presti will probably say give me your 2024 first round pick you know i think I think that's probably what he's more interested in for these good teams. Totally, yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I think that he's looking at where can I get, where can I maximize the value, and that's that's sort of the you know people keep saying that the Thunder are rebuilding, and people within the Thunder will will push back on that and say they're not rebuilding yet. They haven't torn the house down. That's the thing they keep saying is that you know the studs are still up. They haven't got down to the foundation yet, and that part is still coming. And so when they get to that point, is when they want to have this treasure trove of first round picks.
1: All right, let's take a quick break here. I'll be right back with with Royce to talk more about uh, the outlook for the thunder on the floor this season so there's nothing worse when you're running your own business or a small business when you're doing all these computer tasks and you're just doing the same thing over and over again for every day and you realize that this isn't what makes your business run this isn't the expertise that you bring to the fore you're wasting your time instead of providing value with your knowledge and your skill doing rote computer tasks that's where Zapier comes in. It can help you automate many of these tasks, that you're doing, it's just the easiest way to automate your work. You can instantly engage with leads. You can send them to a CRM or a spreadsheet, notify your team so they can act fast on every opportunity, and that's just scratching the surface. They support more than 1,500 business applications. The possibilities are are endless. You'll be able to make Zapier work for you without writing code. You don't have to ask a developer for help. 4.5 million people now are saving an average of 40 hours per month by using Zapier. There are just so many things that it can automate you just going through the list. I think back to when I was a lawyer, it's like, man, if I would have had this, I I could have saved so much time. My assistants could have saved so much time right now through November. Try Zapier free for two weeks by going to Zapier, Z-A-P-I-E-R dot com slash capspace That's Zapier dot com slash capspace zapier.com slash cap space don't forget that slash cap space URL we talk about all the time around the program they'll get you your free 14day trial once again that's zapier.com zapier.com slash cap space let them know that you came from us What's going to happen for these guys at the three? That's the big hole that sticks out to me uh, on the roster. I guess we can start uh, with Andre Robertson, who's the only guy really, uh, you know, they've got Nader, Deontay Burton, uh, Dar- is it Basley or Basley? I always mess that Basley. up. Basley. Yeah, Basley. Baisley. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Hamadou Diallo. Terrence Ferguson. I guess really just the the whole wing rotation. If you want to say Shea's going to start at the two for now with Paul at the one. Do you think quickly? Do you think that'll be the plan to start him at the two I next? Think to Chris so. Paul? Yeah, I think so.
2: Yeah think so i mean they yeah. or they could go with terrence ferguson and almost kind of go with this pseudo three guard you know they're really yeah. happy with ferguson last year and so you know could kind of you know ferguson's six foot seven he's a little bigger than people think so he you know kind of going into that whole small forward conversation that it could kind of be Gilgis alexander chris paul and ferguson as sort of a hybrid two three maybe but like it's funny nate that you know nothing really kind of encapsulates the uh the kind of what the thunder have lost than whoever starts at the three for them this if it's, you know, if it's Abdul Nader, it's like, you know, Kevin Durant used to be in that spot and then Paul George was in that spot and those guys are no longer here. And so that's what's here now. <laughs> you know, like yeah. nothing really summarizes it quite like Deontay Bart- uh Deontay Burton starting at the three
1: well, so who do you like to emerge out of that group? Then you you think? Uh, I mean, I guess it would be Robertson if he's healthy, right?
2: Yeah, I think that's probably most likely. Um, you know, he's a little bit more of a natural, I think, three rather than two. You know, he played two a lot when he played alongside Durant and and also Paul George because that was kind of more their specific positions. Um, but as a defender, I think that Andre Robertson is a little more well suited to defending threes. I think he's he's better at it, quite honestly. Um, you know, he's, he's an elite defensive player, but one of his, you know, I, I don't even want to call it a limitations cause he's still high level at it, but he's, he's not as good at chasing players off the ball, like a JJ Reddick or a CJ McCollum or something like that. He's, he's much, much better in isolation on those guys. And, um, you know, he's, he's an incredible defense player in that regard. So, um, I think that he's probably the most likely candidate. Obviously that goes with the kind of the, the context of where's his health at, is he going to be able to return to form? Um, and, and plus, you know, I think it's worth asking though, Nate, you know, within the context of. Previous Thunder teams, the limitations of Robertson offensively, they were you know they could get by on that because of what they had around him, uh, and they were willing to basically trade elite level on one end of the floor with you know D league level on the other. Are they willing? Are they willing to make that exchange now within the context of this team that looks a lot different? And and does Robertson maybe is he more suited to play in a different more managed role than just as a you know tried and true starter? So, but you know I think I think opening night if I'm taking you know if I'm placing. I'm I'm guessing Robertson's their starting three
1: well and you're really Chris Paul I think if you put shooting around him and you're going up against a team in the regular season that Chris Paul Stephen Adams pick and roll could be really really effective I mean Adams is one of the best screeners in the league he's really a craftsman in that regard and you know Paul obviously is as well as long as you're not going up against a team that's going to switch that action uh I think Chris Paul can still operate he's got his mid-ranger he's uh, a great passer he had some wonderful games for houston even especially against teams that are playing conventional pick and roll defense but if you've got robertson out there um adams shea is you know he can shoot it if he's wide open but you know, he, that's not really his number one role yeah. take some time uh, to shoot
2: yeah
1: yeah yeah so uh yeah i think having robertson out there could just be make it so difficult for these guys to score and and chris paul might be like hey you know you gotta, you yeah. gotta get this guy you gotta get this guy but but then your other question is who can shoot at, at that position yeah. i mean you know i guess maybe if you wanted to push ferguson up there but you know if he turns sideways you can't see him anymore despite the fact that he's got a pretty good length so i mean maybe just you play robertson against you know when you're going up against Kawhi leonard and paul george or lebron james and you know against other teams you're, you're playing portland or something you, you go with ferguson in that spot.
2: Yeah, it's kind of funny you mentioned that with uh, Chris Paul and Andre Robertson because I think that there's a there, there was a clip of uh, Chris Paul basically like waving his hand one time as Robertson caught the ball in the corner. Like he was like, I'm not going out there to contest this. I mean, so it's like Chris Paul is highly aware of the uh, limitations in shooting for, for Andre Robertson. Um, so that that could be uncomfortable at points. But, you know, Ferguson had his moments as a shooter. Uh, I think that the Thunder, one thing, Nate, is that they're looking for some development from Ferguson as out outside but not just being a catch-and-shoot guy I, I think that they you know he's only 21 years old they see you know he's a supreme athlete uh but you know, one of the things is 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 that he lacks kind of an aggressiveness to be able to drive to the rim and finish uh i don't know that he's ever postered anybody in his life which is just to me highly inexcusable for a player of that athletic ability and the size that he has he should be attempting to dunk over people all the time
0: um, yeah
1: i mean he's got to just actually like get into position to take off you right know, with, yeah, with the I ball mean, and that's and, and Other than dis- the occasional backdoor cut, Alioub, we just haven't seen that. Before. Exactly.
2: He's not somebody that I think decision making has been kind of an issue for him. Is that, you know, when when they've put him in like the corner, which, okay, f- full fairness to, to Ferguson, that's sort of what Russell Westbrook wants. You know, you, when Westbrook sees players running around out there on the floor and like. He's kind of like, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Everybody stand still, please. <laughs> let, let me yeah, break yeah. down my guy. You get over there and I'll pass it to you, all right? Like, just quit running around. Like, that's kind of Westbrook's mentality. And, you know, I think Chris Paul is going to be a little bit – so I think there is kind of an opportunity here for Ferguson to maybe sort of scratch some itches and see where he can kind of go developmentally. I think that the Thunder maybe want to try him with the ball in his hands a little bit more. You know, in summer league uh, two years ago, they had Ferguson play a lot of point guard. and Billy yeah, Donovan, Billy Donovan kind of laughed about it. it. was like, if you just watch that summer league – you think this guy was terrible because like he was so uncomfortable, but we wanted him to experience it. We wanted him to have the ball in his hands, see how he could perform as a pick and roll player. And so I think that they want some of that out of him. Um, and and maybe that kind of leads into the idea of him being able to play a little bit more in that, in that role of the, of the two slash three.
1: I some of the numbers from Ferguson last year, 11% usage and uh 3.8 percent rebound percentage as yeah. well i mean you, you and he's not really like a huge blocks or steals guys too although he does uh, show some defensive uh, intensity so and uh you know basically never got an assist obviously either because he just yeah i mean you know, if, he just i mean i mean you know he he might have been one of the lowest guards in the nba just in terms of like touches per minute
2: even yeah i mean like if the ball was in his hands it was for like a tenth of a second because it was either going up or he was giving it back to russell <laughs> i mean like that was it
1: yeah. like um, so yeah, I mean, the, uh, yeah, I guess it probably since, especially since he's an established starter, I mean, Robertson's health, is that good? Is that the, the latest report? Is he like working out full go yeah. right now? Obviously he had that torn patellar tendon and then all the setbacks from right. last year as well.
2: Right. By all accounts is, you know, he's going to be ready to go for training camp. And, uh, you know, if he's not, then that's just, man, that, that couldn't be a worse sign for his recovery from this injury because he, you know, like you said, he's had some setbacks on it. Um the expectation last year is that he would be back uh, for the beginning of the season, then he had setbacks, and then he was back by Christmas, and then it was back another time, then more setbacks, and so he's had the entire summer to, to rehab, get completely healthy, and if so if he's not back at this point, then I mean, I think that it needs to be a legitimate concern uh, for kind of his career going forward, so from everything I'm understanding is that you know he should be ready to go in training camp, back to full health. To me though, Nate, I think with him, he's kind of struggled at times with confidence, specifically offensively, I mean, why wouldn't he? <laughs> but but like yeah. you know but i think that he, he does give you sort of these kind of quiet uh Kind of quiet, positive offensive things where he scores well in transition. He's a decent offensive rebounder at times. He's you know decent cutter at times, and so you kind of look in the box score and you know you think Andre Robertson, bad offensive player, and then you look and you say, ah, well he had eight points on you know three of five shooting tonight. Uh, he, he, you know, I think just in terms of oh is, is is he a good spot up guy? Absolutely not. He's 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 not going to help you whatsoever. It's just a spot up guy. But if he can kind of create those eight points, ten points, whether it's in transition or on the offensive glass he can be kind of a, a helpful pl- uh, offensive player for you and I think that's what they want from him but but the point being is for him I think he, he's he sort of finds a rhythm in be, being that finding those those lanes to cut in finding that rhythm and and sort of feeling out the game and is it how much time is it going to take for him to kind of rediscover some of that confident uh, aspects of his game where he can kind of get back into that rhythm?
1: you know one way i'd like to see him used is maybe you play muscala at the backup five in certain games and you could have him be the four and have him be just more of a role man absolutely offensively now that assumes that he has the same athleticism that he had before too. i mean i think you know number one is he healthy but number two and i think also for those type of injuries defense can be the thing that takes the longest to come back Mm -hmm. and that's what he's he's hung his hat on so yeah i mean i think you're between just his overall health record and the fact that he's had this injury for so long i mean i think i mean he's going to have every opportunity obviously but expecting him to perform at the same level you know might be a little bit too much especially early on
2: yeah it's it's funny you mention that because i want to say it was 2 years ago might have been three, but he, he pointed out Draymond Green as somebody that he was going to watch a lot of off season tape of, and because you know obviously they're different players, but he kind of saw himself maybe as more of a screener and a, and, a, and a screen and roll type of player, somebody that you know you could hit in the pocket and could take he could take a dribble and then create for somebody else, and so that's kind of a way that you're not just playing uh, four on five offensively all the time, is that you're putting him into actions and kind of getting him out of the corner because you know that's what ha- what happens so often is that you'd place Andre Roberts. In the corner, and yeah, he'd be wide open. Um, but you know, you, you've got you've got help defense just crashing down on the driving lanes of Westbrook or whoever it was. So I think kind of maybe getting a little more creative and finding ways for him to to be a little bit more of a, a, a contributive offensive player would be helpful
1: yeah i mean the time that he probably looked the best and this thunder team looked the best was games three and four of that 2016 yeah. series against the warriors with what danny called the mega death lineup which was uh you know beating up on the warriors death lineup and with Ibaka at the five they're able to spread the floor and use Robertson that way um so between hamadou diallo lou dort deontay burton and darius Basley, put those guys in order of who you think will get the most playing time so that's diallo Dort uh Burton and Baisley
2: I think it's Diallo and I I think you know there was times where Diallo was starting uh last year and you know some of that was out of necessity of injury but uh he was he was kind of having this uh sort of shockingly productive rookie season especially for a second round pick a guy that was kind of seen as more of a project type pick uh supreme athlete incredible dunker uh, great transition player but you know clear offensive limitations really fit fit that thunder profile, didn't he? Like, in terms of like, boy, this guy's yeah, an athlete, well, but he can't and, shoot.
1: And, and so, and so does Dort yeah. as well, you know?
2: Um, but you know, then he had that, that scary looking injury, uh, against the Warriors, which turned out not to be near as severe as it, as it obviously looked, but yeah. Billy Donovan kind of went away from him. And I, and I think that was a little bit, uh, of a regret for the thunder is that they wish that they could have stuck with Diallo a little bit more focused on his development a little bit more, but you know, they started leaning a little more on the veterans, um, um, and, uh, you know, started playing Ray Felton for crying out loud. You know, Ray Felton was getting wing minutes uh in the postseason. And that's, you know, and some of that was, look, Alex Abrines had his issues and there were some some issues that kind of popped up within the roster. But Diallo was kind of this guy that they had that I think that they looked at and said, man, he should have played more. He should have had more opportunity. So I think they're coming into this season kind of, I don't want to say expecting big things out of Diallo, but I do think that they they hope that he can be productive. Burton was kind of this, you know, flash guy where you'd see some things out of him they don't he's like six foot five six foot six they see him kind of more as a four like a a guy that's going to have the ball in his hands sort of that point forward type of role he doesn't really he's a positionless player it's kind of awkward to fit him in basely's a clear project dorts a guy that you know i'd be i'd be a little bit surprised if he plays much at all this year so but within that group i'd say certainly diallo
1: what are they going to do at backup four is that just going to be muscala are they going to try maybe try to move some of these guys up i mean they, i guess nader is in that mix too mm-hmm. i probably should i probably should have mentioned him um uh so is, is that muscala at this point you think
2: yeah i think so and you know i think you know muscala is obviously four slash five um and and it's not like the thunder have a lot of depth uh, at either position <laughs> but uh yeah but you know i, I think that they view muscala more as a four than they do a five i think that's certainly what they signed him to be was more of a stretch four kind of player uh that they could kind of play in some pseudo small ball type of lineups but uh i mean you know when, when with this thunder group i think i think they can put a pretty solid starting five on the floor but i mean as you're kind of going through it nate i I think the clear limitations of this roster is going to be sort of the depth and and the rotations that they're going to find themselves in as well they can kind of kind of engineer a few lineups that look okay and they can stagger some guys about uh, when it comes to second unit play I, especially if they have an injury somewhere they're they're going to really suffer
1: yeah i mean between the three and the four it's really only gallo that is established at playing at a rotational level miscala might have been there at one point during his atlanta days really as more of a, a backup five Five, but I think the last couple of years he's really struggled, um, and uh, despite the Lakers trading Zubac for him, right. uh, you know I think I mean he he back when they were actually trying to compete this year, they got him at the minimum, and that was kind of a, a flyer. Let's just hope that it, that it works out.
2: Yeah, because I mean they have Nerlens they have Nerland's Noel, and I mean they were really quite yeah. pleased, I think, with what Noel provided them. But he's very rigidly a five. You know, it's not like yeah. you're, it's not like you're going to be able to kind of flip flop those positions there. So. So um, you know, again, I think that there could be a few lineups there where you want to you want to space and you want to have Muscala play play kind of five out or something like that. But yeah, uh, yeah, I think I think that he's going to play probably. 75% of his minutes as a backup four. Yeah, I mean The
1: more I think about this team I mean, at the one and the two you've got Paul Schroeder and Gilgis Alexander with maybe Ferguson popping in there a little bit I think that's a pretty decent one two you, know, you would think that Paul Schroeder and Gilgis Alexander would get most of the minutes between the three of them when everyone's healthy uh, at the one and the two but then you know who, who's going to play the three and then Gallo you know I mean if he's he played 30 minutes a game last year and what do you do for the other 18 at Or in the games that that he's not healthy that's a a major concern Um, is there anything that's sort of been in the national narrative about this team that as you think about it you think hey you know I I don't know if I agree with that uh, being with with, the boots on the ground in OKC Mm
2: You know, I think surface level, just specifically about this group, it's that they're going to be bad. You know, I think some people have just kind of seen the departures Mm -hmm. and they're like, you know, I saw one power rankings pretty recently. It was like, uh, like post summer power rankings. I had the Thunder like 26th or something, and I was like, I think they're a lot better than that. You know, I think, um, you know, I think that you're kind of looking at it in the context of what they've lost. You know, yeah, they lost two All NBA players, and so therefore, I think people are like they're like that equals bad. But uh, I think if you just took the jerseys off and you just you just laid out a team. Of you know what you just said, Chris Paul, Shea Gilgis, Alexander, Dennis Schroeder, Stephen Adams, Danila Gallinari. You'd say like that's a pretty decent team. I think that they could be an okay group. I'm not saying they're some 45 win playoff team, but you know I think come late March, early April, that if this group were still together, I think that they will kind of be knocking on the door of a of a you know maybe kind of playing some important games that could mean if they get in the playoffs or not. Um, Kind of in the, in the macro sense, I, you know, this is probably not exactly what you're asking, but the national you know, there's been a lot of takeouts on like the Thunder and like the era of the Thunder and what did, what did it mean? And, you know, the, the, were they a, were they a massive failure? Were they a massive failure or were they a monumental failure? You know, it's like, I think a lot of people have looked at it that way. And the thing that I push back on is that I see it as, um, it was an incredible success, uh, within the context of did the outcomes, Like, yeah, they failed. They didn't win titles. They had the, 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 it didn't coincide with the talent that they had with the results that they got. You know, three Hall of Fame players, three MVP players in consecutive drafts. Yeah, they should have done more than gone to one NBA finals. I, I can, I can completely agree with that. But in terms of establishing professional basketball in Oklahoma City for crying out loud, for, I think they had the second best record in the NBA over the last decade in terms of regular season games. Um, there's the context of some of the uh, uh, bad luck, the injuries, the departures, some self-inflicted. Trading Harden was obviously a self-inflicted thing. Durant leaving was something they couldn't necessarily help. So... I push back on just this idea that the Thunder were a failure in, in their first 10 years. I think that they were an incredible success, personally.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's I mean, If you look at where they were when, I mean, I guess they technically drafted Russell Westbrook when he was still a, a Sonic. But right. if you want to say hey, it was just Kevin Durant and, you know, PJ Carlissimo as the coach when we were moving to, to OKC to start from that point and say, yeah, we had this decade of success. I It's just Sam Presti is such an enigma to me because <laughs> they, he did did this incredible job from 2008 or 2007 until 2011 and then in 2012 he makes the Harden trade and then other than selecting Stephen Adams it seemed like basically everything he did f- until Uh, the Ibaka trade just didn't work out. Right. Like, and it was, that was really just, they could never get somebody who could shoot. There's the, uh, on the wing, there's the Harden trade. I mean, there's, they're playing Derek Fisher in the 2014 playoffs. You know I mean? There's just like, they just could not get over the hump. But then they, they finally, after holding their chips close to the vest for so long, they make the trade for waiters and canter. I mean, you're giving up two first round picks. Finally, you're going to go into the tact and those are the guys that you're getting guys who are you know pretty flawed especially Cantor couldn't play against their biggest rival which ended up being Golden State uh which a team that they knew was out there by the time they made that trade in 2015 uh so and then the moment Kevin Durant basically is probably gonna leave Sam Presti becomes brilliant again and makes a trade for Sabonis and Olatipo and then is able to flip them for Paul George and now he's he's done this deal with with George and Russell Westbrook it just it was so odd that they're right there on the cusp and all of a sudden he just like completely lost his head for four years and now he's brilliant again like I I I think it's it's I think what you're
2: describing is I think he's a much better builder than he is like a landlord you know like I think he's he's much better at building the building than managing the building you know
1: yeah yeah so he should be a developer and then you sell it to like the property (laughs) management company and then and go Go somewhere else, yeah. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) That's a great analogy. You know,
2: it's funny because... you know, Presti is one of the, surprisingly, Nate, I mean, it's like you look around the NBA and he's one of the longest tenured executives now at this point. Um, and so, he, you know, he's got a pretty long track record and he's got, you know, he's got some hits and he's got some, some pretty obvious strikeouts. And, you know, I think Sam Presti, if he were on this podcast, he would try to, to make his case on why he traded James Harden. I think, I think over time, uh, a lot of people have kind of softened in sort of trying to defend that, that we're close to, close to it is that, you know, they, they now kind of acknowledge like, yeah, probably would just what the best thing you know but like um you know, but there was obviously the context of, of what was going on. But look, Presty would say that he, he drafted him. It's not like he wanted to trade him. He felt like his hand was forced. And uh, so I think at that well,
1: hand, hand was forced by what?
2: Right. And I think that, well, I mean, he obviously could have kept him and he, you know, he was going to be a restricted free agent. But I'm just saying Presty felt like his hand was forced because of the financial constraints that was coming down the line. Yeah. And then also, you know, they had concerns with with chemistry and what they were hearing about how Harden was going to feel about another of, you know, playing a a season not on a max extension the way he wanted it, and they felt like he was kind of trying to kind of push his way out and that there was going to be this kind of hierarchical uh, hierarchical issue between Westbrook, Durant, and Harden, and they were worried about, you know, they had this kind of purity within their locker room and the Thunder were this kind of adorable little franchise that everything was perfect and pristine, and they were worried that this was going to get messed up and they had these two-star players that were going to... Because, you know, I mean, I think we all view James Harden as this... This hall of fame player now at that point he was not that guy there was yeah. there, no, everybody had the questions of can he can he run his own team is he capable of doing that? And there, and I think it was probably split 50-50 on whether or not he could. Um, and look, I think Presty would tell you, like, they misevaluated. They, they didn't know that he could and, and they just, they didn't get that right. And the problem is, is that's, that's a, that one wasn't just a swing and a miss. That was like, you know, swing it at a, at a pitch that was right down the middle and throwing your bat into the stands. I mean, they, they didn't just miss it. They just like, they really missed it. Yeah,
1: and when I've asked Ron about that and had many conversations, I mean, this was seven years ago now, people will tell you that the whole financial constraint thing and that there was a ownership involvement and like, okay, you just can't go into the tax, you got to move this guy, that that part is overblown, at least to the people that I have mm-hmm. talked to. Now, some of those people have reasons to not necessarily be uh, the biggest fans of Sam Presti. So, you know, you can take that with a, a grain of salt a little bit uh, as to, you know, why it was that that, that move was made but you know there are people who say hey you know that was a sam decision that wasn't an ownership decision
2: yeah i and i and i think that you know, having been close to it and heard a lot of these same things, and um, you know, I think you can kind of talk yourself into it one way or the other. Um, I do think the chemistry element played a big part of it. Uh, I think that there were some significant concerns about what was going to happen with Harden, Westbrook, and Durant going forward. And one of the one of the truths of this whole situation is that the Thunder were still good, regardless. You know, they they still put together yeah, a team.
1: People that, forget how good that 2013 team. Right, was. Right, they won 60 eight. games.
2: They had the best margin yeah. of victory in the NBA until Westbrook got hurt. I mean that they were probably the favorite to win the NBA title. I think if you ask people in Oklahoma City, they basically have a, a banner hung thinking they did win the NBA title that,
0: that yeah, year.
1: Yeah, I mean I I still would have gone with that Heat team mm-hmm. that won twenty seven games in a row that year. Right. I mean that they they were the favorite and they'd just beaten the Thunder with Harden the previous right. year. So I, I probably would have gone with that Heat team, but certainly, you know, to get to the finals at least they they had as good as But a it's shot not as, as they if right.
2: they fell off the face of the earth without James Harden. I mean they, they still no, they still went to Western Conference Finals and and it all culminated in twenty seven 16 against the warriors when they, when they really put together some of the best basketball they ever played in Oklahoma city and then blew a three, one lead and clay Thompson happened in game six and, and it all. And that's really kind of the demise of, of that thunder group. So, um, You know, it's one of those things where if they could have just if they could have kind of pushed through and and won in spite of James Harden being traded, then I think Sam Presti feels the validation that he wishes he had. But again, like I said earlier, we're all this is an outcome based sport. They keep score and they remember who won. So the Thunder didn't. And so in that context, it was not a success. But in a kind of that existential uh, perspective, it was a success
1: yeah and maybe if they had gotten guys who are better fit because there there would have been some redundancy between Westbrook Harden uh, and Durant you know to where all three of those guys couldn't have fully reached uh, their potential necessarily or at least if they'd reached their potential they just wouldn't have been able to having all three of them on the floor there's only one ball that's uh and especially with Westbrook shooting limitations that's something that could have been an issue um let's let's get back to this team though um what do you see as like the big strengths for this group
2: who he ha i i mean i think that i think that they could be a pretty good defensive team i i think that i agree. i, I think that they do have a lot of potential on that end of the floor um you know, they, they've been a very good defensive team the last few years, especially uh, pre-Robertson injury. They were one of the best defensive teams in the, uh, in the league. And that was in spite of playing Carmelo Anthony, you know, 30 minutes a game. Um, that was despite playing Russell Westbrook, 34 minutes a game. Um, and last year they kind of restructured their defensive scheme and they were, and didn't have Robertson and they were still an elite defensive team. Forced a lot of turnovers, specifically live ball turnovers, turned defense in the, into offense. And the, you know, they're obviously, they don't have Have one of the best individual defenders anymore in Paul George, but I think they have a lot more solid guys. And you remove Russell Westbrook, who uh, at times is extremely lazy on the defensive end, is a gambler, was out of position a lot, would show flashes of great defense, great individual defense at, at certain points, but for the large part was kind of checked out on that end of the floor. And I yeah. think you put in a guy uh, in Chris Paul who has always been um, very solid, very committed to playing good defense, um, young players that can play uh, that are you know, have high energy and are willing to commit on that end of the floor. I think they could be, you know, a top six, seven type of defensive team. Uh, so to me, uh, that, that's probably where they're going to be at their best.
1: Yeah, how does Steven Adams fit into that? He's one I wanted to talk about briefly. Obviously, he's got the big contract. It seemed like they might have been trying to move him uh, and weren't successful in doing that. Maybe that's something they'll, they'll revisit. But I thought he took a major step back last year was that just and the, you know he got outplayed by time at times by cancer mm-hmm. in the, that playoff series was it just health related where he just got a bunch of nagging injuries last year or is he at, at a new phase in his career it's definitely a guy who's relying a lot on strength and athleticism
2: yeah, yeah and he, I mean he's a bruiser and so he plays extremely physically and um, I think that that kind of wear and tear really does catch up to him I don't think it's a coincidence Nate that you see Stephen Adams maybe play some of his least productive basketball come late season and playoff time I think he is really he's really kind of taking a beating and that might be something the thunder need to kind of reconsider as they go through seasons is figuring out a way to manage steven adams you know he's he's had some lower back issues that he's kind of dealt with over time and where that'll kind of flare up and it'll bother him Um, and he's just i mean he's just intrinsically tough i mean he's he's a new zealander he's a rugby guy and you don't talk about being hurt and so he's kind of tough to manage in that regard uh in terms of like how trainers are you know communicating with him but um yeah i think that you know he had Moments where you know, in terms of finishing uh, as a pick and roll player, he was extremely productive. I think he showed flashes as more of a post up threat, that, where you
1: know you yeah, kind of that spin move going right, to right. He's extremely
2: quick, great yeah. feet. Um, and so there were there were some moments. You know, he had a cup. You know, he had one game against Nikola Jokic where they just basically went back and forth for a half. Uh, you know, and and if you just dropped in off Planet Mars, you would think like, wow, I'm watching the two best big men in basketball right here <laughs> uh, because they were kind of they were you know exchanging blows uh on the uh on the offensive block but um yeah i think i think that you know, he's one of those players, Nate, where it's like, he's got a contract now. And so there's an expectation level for production from him. And he's a solid defensive player. He's not anything special. He's, he's typically positioned correctly, but you know, he, he he's very, he's very, um, rigid in terms of like, he's not, he doesn't play very instinctively on the defensive end. You know, it's not like he's going to say, Oh, you know, defense been compromised. I'm going to crash over and try to help from the weak side and block this shot. He's like, yep. Nope, my assignment is to be here and I'm going to do what I've been coached to do. and um And I think that's sometimes a limitation for him on the defensive end. Sometimes you just have to play instinctively. you got to take that risk and crash over and prevent two points rather than just stay solid. So I think that's something they need to see a little bit more from him. I think also, uh, you know, some people roll their eyes about it, but I think they want to see him as a shooter. I think they want to see him uh, evolve a little bit and be, you know, not necessarily cranking four threes a game, but I think that they want him to potentially be a threat to shoot at some point because as a big man that plays six feet and in all the time, Uh, there's some offensive limitations that come with that in terms of space and i think that they they would like to see a little bit of a development
1: there yeah and he may have a more of a chance to to do some of those post-ups and especially against smaller guys there are a lot of smaller centers out there uh he's got more effectiveness that hook shot his little floater is something he's worked on but yeah i mean he's gonna have to sustain it throughout the season like we talked about um any other strengths that that pop out to you for this group real quick
2: i mean i think I think that they could be a, a quality half court team. You know, I, 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 think as a, and that's kind of been a struggle. You know, the Thunder have always kind of been a, a solid offensive team, but they're, they typically have been good because they're great in transition. And, uh, you know, the, Russell Westbrook's one of the best transition players ever. And I, I don't necessarily believe that they'll be great in that regard, uh, with, with this group, but I think, you know, Chris Paul typically has, you know, good half court, uh, you know, Command over an offense, and and I think that they could be. You know, Chris Paul's always been a great crunch time player. So, like, if, if the Thunder can be close in games, I think that they could be a pretty good finishing team at times. But you know, it, all that to be said, uh, they're going to have their struggles on the offensive end. I think just because they have significant holes within the rotation, and and those are just unavoidable.
1: I'm interested to see how the rebounding changes without Westbrook. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Adams certainly will get more defensive rebounds this year. You would imagine. I think they could struggle a little bit rebounding uh with that unless robertson is out there he's a great rebounder for his position if he can get back to playing at the same level but gallo is not an amazing rebounder as a as a power forward uh muscala Noel, I mean, they'll, they'll probably be a better offensive rebounding group than defensive rebounding, I'd imagine. But maybe you know, Stephen Adams is just such a good box out guy that they'll be good defensive mm-hmm. rebounding regardless. So I, I'm curious to see what's going to happen there. That that aspect I'm having a little trouble projecting.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. And I mean, I mean, I think just if it often feels like it's like a you know a commentary on the Westbrook triple double thing, just to acknowledge that Stephen Adams' rebounds are going to go up, and that's you know, was Stephen Adams blocking out specifically for Russell Westbrook? Yes and no, but I mean, Westbrook just went and got rebound at the same time, um, you know, he just he's just instinctively a rebounder. He's gonna go rebound, and now that guy's not on the team anymore. So thereby, Steven Adams is going to have to kind of fill some of those gaps. And uh, you know, it will be funny, Nate, if there's early in the season, just habitually, if Steven Adams is letting the ball bounce on the floor and he's got his guy blocked down, he's like, Oh, am I supposed to grab that thing? <laughs> do I do I <laughs> grab it now? Is that what I do? And uh but, you know, I think that we might we might view Adams in a little bit different of a context if he's averaging, you know, fifteen and eleven versus Fifteen and eight, like he has, kind of over over uh, the course of his career.
1: Um, weaknesses, I think, transition play, I think, is going to be mm-hmm. a weakness for this group, especially compared to what they're used to. Chris Paul just does not want to run at this stage of his career. Gilgis Alexander is not a like run it down your throat type of guy. Shooter can be fast sometimes, but you know who's going to run with him? That's question mark. Gallo is not a guy who's going to like run the lanes, and uh, you know he he could trail and pull up for threes, but yeah, I mean, I don't think. Adams is a like sprint the floor type of guy at this point of his career. So yeah, I think I would expect them to be one of the least frequent transition teams in the NBA. Uh, and then obviously the shooting mm-hmm. uh, and just the, the depth at some of the positions we talked about. Um, anything else pop out to you?
2: Well, one thing I'd say about just kind of in that transition uh, uh, thinking is that I think, kind of in terms of a, like a entertainment standpoint, it's going to be a huge adjustment, I think, for for fans that are going to Thunder Games to, to kind of now go from a team that was, while it had its flaws and its frustrations, was highly entertaining because they did play fast, they played downhill, they had these. Kind of moments in games where you know they're 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 turning you over, they're scoring ten straight points, and the the building is rocking. And now they're going to kind of go from being one of these you know high tempo, high intensity teams to more of a technical, mechanical type of team. And just yeah. in terms of that sort of jarring, like this team looks different. Like Russell Westbrook, for all whatever you think about him, the dude is one of the funnest players to watch in the entire world. Every single game is exciting and different, and it's it's uh, you know. Extremely Extremely entertaining. Um, Chris Paul is a fun player, but he's not to everybody. And so, um, you know, I think kind of adjusting to not having that transition element is going to be something that fans are going to have to kind of wrap their minds around. All right, uh, ready to do a predicted record for the Thunder? Everybody will forget what I say, right? Nobody's going to hold me to this.
1: Well, I, this is preliminary. I mean, right. you can adjust your prediction before the season. I'll adjust my
2: sure. I'll adjust my prediction like April seventh. <laughs> <laughs> and reserve right um, to change it
1: then yeah uh I, i'm happy to go first to, okay. if you want uh i'm curious so, to know what you say
2: I've, well, I've got a number in my head but i'm curious to know okay
1: what you say. all right I, i'll go first that's only fair um so i try to do this by kind of putting together where i think they're going to be in terms of offense and defense i think there'll be times that they can be competent with chris paul but i don't know if we're at the chris paul makes a good offense by himself stage especially without shooting around him i i think they'll be kind of you know low teens uh or, or high teens low 20s on offense and then defensively again I, I think they can put out some units that look really good i think there's, there's going to be a lot on steven adams we're going to learn more about him as a the defender they robertson is a key piece as well i, I still am not quite buying how many games he's going to play whether he can still be a difference maker and and also be enough of a difference maker defensively to get on the floor mm-hmm. uh especially so because he's a pending free agent too they may not see him as part of this group and then obviously then you throw in the possibility of trades as well i like you i think it's more likely than not that paul finishes the season on this team um uh, i don't mean to put words in your mouth if i'm no no no, i agree let me know um i do think gallo might end up being gone Robertson, I mean, like the the better he plays, the more likely he is to be gone as well. Shooter could be gone as well. Um so I think that's a, a real element where they could just be playing out the string at the end unless they really do get off to that good start that you were talking about. So I, I would throw that in there too. Defensively, you know, I would say kind of in the ten to fifteen range is where I might see them at, at this point in time. And we haven't even mentioned the name Billy Donovan either. I mean right. that's gonna be interesting for him to actually be able to coach this team for the first time. Right. Uh, we're gonna find out if Billy.
2: Donovan's a good coach or not?
1: (laughs) I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a tough situation for him too. Honestly, I mean, but quickly, you you get the impression that he could either be on any kind of hot seat or would want to just leave and go back to college because you know they're not going to be competing for a while. Do you? No. I think I think
2: he's interested in remaining in the NBA, and I and I think that he wants to. You know, if he if he coaches well, I think he wants to stay with the Thunder. I think I think the Thunder are evaluating him just in the same regard that they're evaluating everybody else, and and one of the main evaluation uh parts is is what kind of a, of a developmental coach is he because that's going to become such a big part of of what the thunders uh future looks like
1: yeah and they haven't had the greatest success uh, under him granted with not you know the highest draft picks in the world um uh, of developing players uh, other than steven adams but he was kind of fully formed by the time uh donovan came in so i think i'm gonna go 33 wins for this group if i if you could guarantee me that they're all gonna stay together for the whole season i would be higher i think I'm also very concerned about a Chris Paul injury. Um, You know, I don't think Schroeder is a winning player. So I I think, you know... I would, yeah, maybe I should be a little bit higher, but I I think fully formed, you know, they're kind of 20th in offense and between 10th and 15th in defense. So that would be a high thirties win teams, but then you throw in the possibility of injuries and trades and that's how I get to the thirty-three.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's what my mind's at, Nate, is that I feel like you almost have to make two predictions for this Thunder team. It's like, okay, here's, here's the prediction on this team if they stay together. And to me, that group is a 40 win team. I'm going to say they're 40 and 42 if they stay together, because I I do think that they can be uh, solid across the board. I think that they can they can conceivably believe that they could put out uh, an eight man rotation that can hold up and and win games against mid tier and and below average teams. But the team that trades Danilo Gallinari, trades Dennis Schroeder, um, I'm not going to say trades Chris Paul because again I I I'm, I believe that he's more likely to stay than not. But even the team that kind of takes a hit in terms of their what what little depth they do have yeah i think that they're a 34 win team so like uh it's it's they're very hard to predict in terms of because we just don't know where they go from here if they can stay together and stay healthy which obviously is is such a caveat for any team making a prediction but i think that they i I think i think a goal for that group would be if it's march 20th you can say hey yeah they're they're three games out of eighth in the in the west you know like they they could make a push and get in uh but uh, if if they kind of go back on some of these uh, other parts that they have go get a few more assets for the future then i think that they're like like you said i think that then they're they're a mid 30s low 30s type of win team
1: yeah, I mean, if Clay Bennett can maybe uh, redirect the Mississippi River to be west of Oklahoma City and move them into the Eastern Conference, then maybe right. they could be they could be competing for a, a playoff spot. But yeah, other than that, I mean, I, I expect it again to be that bottom of the West to be you know forty five win and plus just range, the the West more. is
2: just too good. I mean, like yeah, exactly. There's just too many good teams that you know even teams that you would have back in June would have said, "Well, yeah, you can probably count on them not being very good." Now, now you're like, "No, the Mavericks are going to be good." The, the Pelicans are going to be better than you thought. I mean you go down the line and it's there's only really two bad teams in the West that I think that you can you can feel like that you are distinctly better than at this point.
1: So can I get a one uh semi official number okay, okay. I'll get, of, uh... if you
2: need if you need for record keeping purposes.
1: <laughs> yeah, I actually am entering this okay. into a spreadsheet. Uh, I'll split the difference
2: <laughs> of kind of my thirty four and forty and I'll say thirty eight.
1: Okay. All right. So you're at thirty eight, I'm at thirty three. Best case scenario, it seems like we kinda of talked about that using in like low forties. Yeah I'm thinking
2: it, if they have a great season, I think they go 42 and 40.
1: All right. I, yeah, I'd say uh, I'll put it at 40 for for uh, the best case scenario. Uh, and then worst case... I mean, Worst I, case, I, I think they're – uh, tw- I, I could
2: see it being 25, honestly.
1: Yeah. Now I, I just – that's actually the number I was writing in as soon as you said that I mean, or, or as you were starting They to have a couple
2: – you know, Gallinari gets hurt. Chris Paul misses, you know, four weeks. They trade off some pieces. They start playing, you know, Burton and Nader and their young guys. And, I mean, 25 might even be a little optimistic at that point.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and frankly, other than Gilgis Alexander, I'm not sure that I would project any of those young guys to really be, like, quality – rotation guys yeah. uh, i mean they've got a lot of them but they're still it, it, it's tough given the the lack of shooting um you know maybe they're a quality rotation guy in the sense that they can defend and and you know if you put other pieces around them they could hold up in the way that we've seen with the thunder before but they don't have those other pieces around right. them any longer right yeah um all right well thanks man this was awesome i i really uh, appreciate that uh you coming on it'll be good to to catch up uh, throughout the season are you just uh how are you feeling about this year the first one in i mean basically since you've been covering the thunder that they weren't well i, I shouldn't say because you've been around from the beginning but yeah that's know, in the kid. last <laughs> yeah the, the last uh the last nine years where they're just – they're not necessarily uh, looking like a playoff team. Yeah,
2: it's going to be different. Um, you know, I, Like I said, I think it's going to be an adjustment for a lot of people going to the arena. Like it's going to – you're going to be going down there. Not not only will you not be expecting a win, but you also may not be expecting to be entertained. And um, I, I, I think what's weird for people, Nate, is that they're going to have to kind of they're, – they're playing this sort of like two-time periods where you've got this group that you want to be kind of emotionally invested in. You want to care about what, what they're doing. And you know you got some a couple familiar players, but at the same point you're like, oh, well, I mean they're probably gonna trade a lot of these guys, and, and the real the real stuff's coming in like 2023, 2024. That's when I really need to start caring about the development of this group. So it's gonna it's gonna make it awkward.
1: All right. Well, thanks again, man. This this is great. At uh, Royce Young is that that's the uh, the Twitter handle. Not that uh, you need my promotion. <laughs> have <laughs> you been at Have you been at ESPN for uh, uh, the last? When when did you officially go to ESPN? Uh, like- Twenty fourteen
2: i believe so i've been there almost oh i I forgot i was that late okay yeah well yeah Uh, i mean i was part of the whole true Hoop network and all that stuff you know okay yeah that's official start date was i think in uh early 2014
1: all right man well thanks again i appreciate it and uh looking forward to catching up throughout the season oh man this is the absolute perfect time in my life to have gotten butcher box as a sponsor because you guys know i was on that seven week road trip and uh, uh about 15 pounds or so and so now i'm starting to uh do a low carb eating regimen and butcher box has arrived at my door at the perfect time for that it's all really high quality meat packed fresh shipped frozen and vacuum sealed so it stays that way i really was impressed by their packaging no styrofoam which was really nice which you, you get from some of these other services their options include 100% grass-fed and finished beef free-range organic chicken heritage pork wild-caught alaska salmon really excited uh, for that i've been doing uh, some a lot of sous vide sugar slash nitrate free bacon i'm actually about to go cook up some of that right now all for just around six dollars a meal they send you every month nine to eleven pounds of meat free of antibiotics and added hormones and they have free shipping in the continental united states i've been eating a ton of this i made some burgers with a low carb sandwich thin it's actually so you taste the meat even more when you're having those low carb sandwich thins and Really, really impressed with this grass-fed meat, whether it's ground beef, really good New York strip steak that I sous-vided. And right now, ButcherBox is offering new members ground beef for life. Two pounds of ground beef in every box for the life of their prescription, plus 20 bucks off their first box at butcherbox.com slash capspace. Or, or, they give you a lot of optionality here, enter promo code capspace at checkout. If you're trying to buy 100% grass-fed beef at Whole Foods, you're going to just spend way more than if you are using ButcherBox. So go to ButcherBox.com slash Capspace or enter that familiar promo code Capspace at checkout and let them know that you came from us and get 20 bucks off your first box and two pounds of ground beef in every box for the life of your subscription with that familiar Capspace code. All right, time to bring in our Blazers expert, Dunked On debut, if I'm not mistaken, and I know I'm not, uh, Mike Richmond from... From, uh, NBC Sports uh, Northwest. How are you doing, man?
3: I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Make my uh, my big rookie of the year show.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we got a lot to talk about here with these Blazers, and there's been so much upheaval around the NBA overall that... One of the questions that I normally ask people uh, to, as starting off for a baseline, trying to project a team's performance, is how good the team was last year. Now, for a lot of teams, you know, you got Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. You know, maybe that's not not as interesting, or you lost Paul George, or with the Thunder earlier. We when we talked to Royce, uh, but these this Blazers team is bring back most of the same cast of, of characters. So, where I want to start with is just talking about what this team was uh, last year they did make it to the west finals they lost in four games although a closer series than the four games might have indicated with to a warriors team without kevin durant they've won the game seven on the road obviously against denver so do you feel that this team was this the second best team in the western conference or as some have said like me that uh, they were the beneficiary of of an easier side of the bracket
3: yeah i mean they were probably the the third best team in the west i think beating denver in game six and seven proves that they were you know at least right up there um i don't think they were as good as the rockets were last year um they had a little better health luck like when their injuries happened as opposed to the rockets and they just sort of have that continuity regular season juju that has been their magic for three years to sort of always overachieve in the regular season before um the tough realities of the playoffs usually come crashing down on them but yeah i think they were the third best team in the west i i i if you want to say that they were fourth, sure, but like I wouldn't quibble. They were the, they were the third best team. In yeah, the best I mean last they year.
1: certainly earned that title over Denver, uh, as you said. And, and I think one thing that's interesting that would be a counter argument to my statement that they weren't the second best team. and Yeah, I, I agree with you. They're probably you know third, fourth uh, in that range. Uh, was th- that they really, really were good. When they had their best guys on the floor. Now you can say that of a lot of teams, but they tried this new thing where they weren't gonna play Damon CJ, uh split them up. They're gonna play those guys together more. And when those guys were together, they were great. You know, when Yusuf Nurkic was available as well, ten net rating with him on the floor, Dame on the floor, eight net rating. I mean, those are very good conference championship type of team numbers it was just then when they went to their bench they had no backup point guard and you know they really struggled without dame or cj on the floor negative 7.2 net rating so
3: Maybe you can make the argument, yeah. And it was worse than that for most yeah. of the year, too. They were they were flirting in that 10 range for up until about Yeah, February. I mean, that
1: the, you know, I think it was one of those things. Oh, Nick Skouskis has five three-pointers uh, in the first half of that first game against the Lakers, and then it kind of uh, fell off from there. Uh, and But, you know, that was the impression you had at the beginning, and then you look at the numbers like, oh, man, this, this experience isn't necessarily working that well. So, yeah, you can make the argument, hey, they show up their bench a little bit, and, you know, in the playoffs the bench doesn't matter as much, and maybe this team is, you know, right there with some of these other Western Conference contenders. Um, anything else that, that stuck out to you about the performance last year that uh, you wanted to hit
3: on? I, I think the the big thing is is sort of like the thesis for their whole offseason is that over the last three years, when it's Dame, CJ, Chief, Alf Camino, and Maurice Harkins, yeah. those four, and pretty much any center interchangeably, but, but mostly Yusuf Nurkic, they're like a a plus seven net rating. And then that same core four in the playoffs, they were, they've been over the last three seasons, minus 6.6 net. So it's, it kind of seems like this is a really good regular season team. They figured out how to be a really good, have a really good, just regular season record kind of overachieve a lot of times. Um, but, the thesis for their whole offseason was we have real weaknesses in the playoffs that we play against elite teams have been exposed uh we'll talk about whether they actually address those or not but i think that was kind of the reasoning going into this uh offseason is to they just wanted more from their wings that,
1: uh, okay so that's what they thought really the the weakness was is just that they weren't getting enough from their wings
3: it was just so much of um particularly in the golden state series because they you know they've played the warriors three ls four years in the playoffs uh the warriors just don't guard yeah. out from they're like okay you know so he we just we we absolutely will not guard him and dame talked about it a bunch is that you know he's he's coming around picking rolls and he's seeing the two defenders there but he's also just he's just making eye contact with draymond on the back side and he's just like i know I, even if i get past these two he's you know he's waiting there for me and what am i going to do kick it out to chief in the corner how many times can you really do that and it's a lot of teams have said i, I dare these guys to beat us and maybe once a playoff's you you know once one game in the playoffs you'll see al Camino step up you'll see Maurice Harkle step up but they're not going to do it every night at the highest level
1: yeah and I think Evan Turner fell into that category perhaps even more because he was just never going to hit more than he just wasn't even going to take more than two or three a game yeah. yeah I
3: mean he had an incredible game six against Denver where he did not attempt a yeah. shot one of the all time one of my all time favorite games the zero field goal attempts. You know, and uh, and he was sort of a weird hero in that game.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and, and so I think also just Golden State obviously it caused a lot of problems for a lot of teams in the Western Conference the last four years. But you know, and Draymond Green really was the kryptonite to this Blazers offense a lot of the time.
3: Yeah, he ruined them. He ruined their. He ruined three straight years for him just because they had no solution for what he could do on defense.
1: Yeah, so. I don't know that those weaknesses would have mattered quite as much this year because I'm not sure there is a defensive team in the West with that same level uh, of intelligence. Maybe Houston, but the, you know the Blazers have never matched up with them. I think Houston did a good job of not guarding teams too, and obviously there's a, some new right. threats. But do you feel that these off-season moves uh, have uh, addressed that weakness on the wing? I mean, and it's it also I think it's interesting too that offensively is kind of where the focus is uh, on the wing. Yeah. But you know, I, I do think those defensive contributions from Aminu and Hargles and perhaps. Turner were, were underrated but do you think it, at the minimum they've addressed those offensive concerns with the group they put together now
3: i think yes but i think they have favored addressing some of their postseason weaknesses by sacrificing a lot of what made them a good regular season team they've got they're going to be a worse rebounding team for my money they're going to be a lot worse on defense on the perimeter this year um, i'm not a big believer in rodney hood guarding high level threes every single night um you know, a lot hinges on what Zach Collins can do playing, starting at power forward and playing big minutes, but um, I think they have addressed the sort of we need other guys who can dribble and score when, when teams go hard after our top two scorers, but I don't think they've from overall I don't think they've sort of rounded out and improved this roster I think that they're pretty similar they just are different
1: yeah I think that's a a fair way of putting it um and just to go over some of those changes here uh Lillard and McCollum are probably going to start at the two and the three and feel free to correct me on any of these if it's not just going to shake out the three they brought back Rodney Hood right around the the mini mid-level um and uh is he going to be their starting three is that the plan
3: I yeah. think so I think they're going to go into the year with him starting at three you know this offseason they were really really preparing uh you know just internally that Hood was going to price himself out for in like the eight nine range and they just weren't going to pay him and I think that would have meant they would just bring back Al Farouk and figure it out from there but when Rodney Hood's people called on the opening day of free agency and said yeah you know the mini mid levels, cool let's do it Th- that kind of changed their whole thinking they said okay we have an offensive wing that can help us well, let's roll from there and kind of figure out the puzzle after that so rodney hood was a huge piece for their decision making um whether that's a good idea or not we'll find yeah, out well
1: they did of course uh, have limited resources they, they did also give him the player option to to uh cement that and he's got the the no trade for this year uh because he's on right, right. a second consecutive what could be a, a one-year deal uh and so is that college you think is to be starting the starting for. Is that written in stone? You think at least for the beginning of the year?
3: I mean, they don't have a lot of other power forwards oh, on the right. roster. Yeah. They yeah. kind of cl- they <laughs> kind of cleared the decks for him to like. It's like Anthony Tolliver, M- Mario Hezonja, you know, or or Zach. They just don't have um I guess Terry Stotts did say to conference that he thinks Paul Gasol could play a little bit of four I think that is just bizarre and I don't believe I don't think he means that I think he just said it as like a nice thing to say in July um so yeah I, I just don't think they have any power forwards on the roster it's Zach or nobody
1: yeah it, it does seem that way and you know Zach I, I thought I mean he still fouls a lot but he had games in that Denver series in particular where he was a real defensive difference maker and I think again we may see a little bit of a different western conference now. now if you go up against Houston maybe it's a little different but maybe be this idea of hey we're gonna have two rim protectors with collins and whiteside and yeah you know if you you got a stretch four on the other team that we think could burn Collins. All right. We're willing to live with that. And we're just going to barricade the rim with these two huge guys. And we're going to play yeah. an even more extreme version of that Terry Stotts style, where we're only going to give up mid Rangers. You're getting nothing at the rim. We're going to get every defensive rebound with these two guys, uh, at least when they're in there together, when they go to the bench, maybe not uh, and that they we're just going to get enough offense from Lillard and McCollum and hood on the perimeter. And then we'll take away the rim. and you know, guys, will probably hit some shots on us in the mid-range and from three but if you're not getting anything at the rim kind of like the Bucks last year then you know we can be a successful enough defense uh at least in the regular season I actually think you know what you're saying about as I'm kind of talking myself through this here what you're saying about Aminu and Harkless you know I think those guys are really important defensive contributors in the playoffs or could have been against the right team like they didn't go up against a team that had a three that you really had to guard last year um
3: yeah they didn't ever yeah. find it since basically that Clippers series, they haven't found sort of that like three-four pick-and-roll combo where they could like put Mo on the primary ball handler and switch him with Chief. Yeah. Um, they just they just haven't seen that team, uh, and they had no answers for th- the Pelicans that one year. So I throw yeah, that I mean, out. Yeah, mean,
1: and they tried. That approach a little big against Jokic that, as I recall, didn't work particularly well. In, yeah, the, in the I, I
3: actually think I wrote that they should put alfru Camino on uh, Jokic after game one, and he got absolutely torched yeah. to was, start game two. so It was something one.
1: to try. I mean, you know, you never know in a playoff series. Sometimes it's not going to work. I understand what the what the thinking was though you could, they could double-team Jokic after that. But yeah, I mean, I think because you didn't have a Kevin Durant or... LeBron James or Kawhi Leonard, I guess Paul George, they guarded okay. That's really the one
0: guy. Yeah,
3: they, they did. It they up. did a good job against him. His, I think, his shoulder injury helped yeah. out a little bit too. But he just, um, you know, they they didn't let him get loose. Uh, he had some, he had some big scoring nights, but he never just like caught fire and had a big efficient night. They 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 were they were pretty good. I mean, they're. They're you know plus defenders. Neither of them are you know yeah. all NBA type guys. I just don't think they have any other. They just don't have the plus defenders. Yeah. Like they didn't. They didn't add those to sort of fill in uh, fill in the blanks. Unless you're a big Kent Bazemore yeah,
1: fan. Yeah, I mean, and I think Bazemore might be able to give them a little bit more of an option, like guarding point guards in a conventional pick and roll defense than they've had to really get over screens. If you want to hide Lillard, who's an okay post defender sometimes uh, on the other teams, three, if they're not any good. So I, I do think, you know, base is going to help them more than Turner did. Um I don't know if you agree with that or not, but
3: yeah, I think know. that's true. I mean, I think they kind of, it took them, whatever uh maybe over 200 games to figure out that evan turner should play power forward and and guard fours um I, it's kind of amazing that it took them that long to get there but eventually they figured out and you know he he kind of saved their bacon a little bit guarding paul uh Millsap in the yeah. playoffs so um it's they have they just have different options um i think uh to your point about zach collins being a really good defensive player I, it's to me there's those it's can those moments translate into 33 minutes of basketball every night you know can he stay on the floor to have yeah 33 good minutes 78 times this year it, um I, that's the big question
1: yeah but it, it'll be an interesting question of okay they don't have as much perimeter talent but you're going to go bigger i mean generally team the bigger you are the better you are defensively and that's something that the spurs yeah. stuck with for a while even as the league was going with more stretch fours to go with two bigs and that you know that can hurt your offense but you say hey damon cj are good enough that that's not going to matter and we're going to get more defensively in theory uh, behind those guys so, yeah i'm really interested to see where it works out i'm not ruling out that they could be as good as they were last year defensively despite losing those three.
3: yeah whether it was 16 last year defensively maybe 16 or 17 yeah,
1: I'll, I'll get in front of you while you're talking but yeah it's pretty close to that
3: yeah and it's so the idea that they could be still a top five offense in the league um, and about a league average defense slightly above or slightly below, I think that's pretty reasonable. You know, um, even with sort of their their changing strengths, I think uh, Hassan Whiteside fits really what they want to do on defense um, perfectly if he's bought in and engaged. And uh, they're probably going to be right there. You know, it's like who's going to take a big step forward for them? Who knows? But their top two guys are so sort Of consistently productive as offensive players, so you kind of know that their baseline for offense is somewhere in the top 10 of the league,
1: yeah. And I mean, it, just to go through some of their what they were defensively last year 16 was correct, uh, pretty decent just defending on field goals, they're 12th there and uh, did a decent job on the defensive glass. But the big problem is 30th enforcing turnovers, and you know, that's probably if anything, yeah, Chief they, was ha- by their best they haven't there. done it in years, so that's that probably yeah. gonna get even worse, if anything. Uh, so that's uh uh, th- that'll be interesting uh so and you know if you never force turnovers it's tough to be a, a, an elite defense but they're uh you know, so it'd be interesting to see this. it's it's a an interesting math problem you said that white side really fits in to what they want to do can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit
3: yeah i mean they just they what they want to do is just let him drop and pick and rolls have the have guards go over the top and sort of rear view contest on on pick and roll actions and have uh, white side play kind of center field or catcher, depending on what what metaphor you prefer, um, and just have guys take contested, you know, 10 to 17 footers and knock it all the way to the paint. And he can, he, that fits his skill set. He doesn't have to move his feet as much, doesn't have to uh run around on switches and get caught in weird positions 30 feet from the rim they want him to stay you know foul line and in and and kind of just catch people and make sure that they're not taking um really high percentage shots of the rim so
1: the party line was that Lillard really wanted white side and that's part of why that move was made was that the case
3: yeah, I think it, th- that's certainly part of it. Um, Dame's funny because he really loves his guy. So I'm sure as soon as they, he was like, yeah, let's go ahead and like get Hassan. And they said, we're trading Mo Harkless. I'm sure Dame was pissed. Yeah. Um, because that's, you know, another good friend of his. But yeah, I, I think, um, you know, they tried to get him in the summer of 2016, that was a huge target of theirs. So that was going to be their big splash signing. And he, he basically didn't even, you know, um, he didn't even let him have a meeting or whatever. And they never got in the room with him. So I think he's, Dame's been a fan of his for a long time. Uh, they, they don't have a super close relationship, but I guess they've known each other on and off. Um, just, uh, Worked out a handful of times over the years and uh, and, and are, do have some sort of prior connection off the court and, and Dame has, you know, developed some affinity for him, I guess. Yeah,
1: well, and I think he really wanted someone that he can throw an alley-oop to, you know, they really haven't had...
3: He's a terrible lob passer. <laughs> like, he's really, well, really the, awful Maybe that's at why
1: it. he needs someone with a larger catch radius, though. <laughs>
3: Yeah, he does. Um, We'll see. Like everyone, I've heard like, you know, eight people, but I can't, I can't, you know, can you imagine the lobs? I'm like, I cannot. (laughs) There's no part of me, (laughs) there's no part of me that can sit here and picture the lobs. Um, You know, maybe they're coming and I'll, and I'll, um, I'll, you know, I'll write 4,000 words about how I was wrong in this development of the lob connection. But um, he just, he's never been good at it. He's never been like, even dating back to the Lamarcus years, he's never good at it. So um, maybe Dame wants that lob threat, but he's gonna have to like be. He's gonna have to do it for me to really. Yeah, be you know, it.
1: I've always think I would like him better with uh, more of a pick and pop big, which he hasn't particularly been cast with either. I mean, the, Nurkic is an excellent pick and roll man. I, mean, I mean, as a as a finisher, I mean, he's not gonna get up and crush dunks, but he could make decisions on the move. He's able to set oh, screen, yeah, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but I felt like Dame, as a guy who likes to really explode and get downhill, a, a lot of point guards that you talk to like that who would say, hey, I'd rather have the middle be open so I can finish rather than this guy rolling to the rim kind of creating uh more clogged driving lanes but uh yeah i mean and we'll see you know so what's the latest with uh with nurkic's health i mean i, I think once it came out i think olshay said you know they don't expect him back until you know february or march or something like that or, or there was a report to that effect i can't remember which but uh that made the put the white side in a little bit more perspective for me because i was kind of wondering like why are you getting rid of mo harkless who arguably is on a good contract for a white side who's not really on a good contract um yeah, yeah I and you, and
3: you don't have much control over him when, when yeah. he's gone um yeah i i think the the word is and neil said I, neil said february in some press conference they added so many. they did such a slow trickle of players this summer that i can't remember which uh, media session it was but he said at some point that um maybe draft night that that nurk they, they expect nurk back in february and they're not going to rush him and all those things everything i've heard from from the from Nurkic camp and all those type of things is that he's, he's on schedule, you know, there's not, um, there's no bad news. He's, he's, he's not, uh, he wasn't doing last I heard in, there was a time in, in the summer where he wasn't doing weight bearing stuff yet, but he was still right on track as far as his plan was, but his plan is February. His plan is the all-star break. Um, so it, it they knew they needed a starting center. Uh, and, and that's why Whiteside became a priority because Even, you know, even if Nurk comes back, the idea that he's going to be whatever he was last season, where he's, for my money, one of the 30 best players in the NBA, um, I just, it's just hard for me to think that he can get there in in the 2019-20 season. I think he can get back there eventually, but it's hard for me to believe that happens during the regular season.
1: Yeah, I mean, and he's had a lot of injuries at this point, too. I mean, going back to that partially torn patellar tendon and then he had the stress fracture that first year that he was a blazer, right. and now he, he had this and you know certainly he's also not someone who's been known for his conditioning and so i think most guys come back pretty well from broken bones as long as there isn't a uh, a joint that's affected but uh, even if it is as gruesome a, as his was but him i have a little more skepticism again because of just the overall weight it, can he stay healthy and just even simply getting back into shape you know how much weight does he put on like that'll be a question also
3: yeah and it just when 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 does he have time to get his wind you just don't practice yeah. in in march you know so so it's like when does he get a time to play 5 on 5 at a really high level next summer for me is when it happens um let's talk about Lillard and McCollum both of them
1: signed lucrative extensions uh, this off season. Um, are these guys going to get better next year? Are they going to get worse? Do you see them as kind of staying the same? Uh, let's start with Lillard. Do you, what is, is there any other things that he can do in his game realistically to get better uh, going into this? I, I believe it's his age twenty nine season.
0: Yeah,
3: it's hard for me to see him making some sort of like jump where you're like, "Yep, he's the best. He's the best point guard in the NBA." Or you know, it's like that. That's kind of the level he's at. I think where he's been sort of the the mark of his his career over the last four seasons has been he's just kind of sharpened up the edges where he's had real problems. He's, you know, he's, um, he's read the game a little bit better. You know, when, when CJ and Nurk were both down, he, I thought he was going to score 40 a night and kind of just drag the team along. And instead he averaged about nine assists. Like he just, he has a, just a better feel for the game than he has. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's just, he picks his spots better. He understands those type of things. So I don't think there's a big statistical improvement coming. I don't think he's just going to be like, you know, leading the league in assist to turnover ratio or some sort of like super point guard jump that he, makes but it's just his his ability just to sort of sharpen the edges of his game he's he's one of the best players in the league and there's no reason for me to think he'll take a step down um I just don't think there's much place for him to go up yeah I think I agree with you there you know it's hard
1: to see him getting better as a finisher at this point I mean the the things that kind of stand out to me Uh, number one, a little bit more of a floater game, maybe. Uh, yeah, he doesn't have that in between game
3: yet, but we'll see, we'll see if he has a
1: there. 56% around the basket. You know, that's something that's kind of waxed and waned for him over the course of his career. He's gotten much better as a finisher and most of his finishes are extremely difficult at, at his. Right. And then I think. Going to his right, like adding that same explosive move going to his right that he has going hard left from the, from the left wing, especially in semi transition situations or against like an ice pick and roll coverage. If he could just get a little bit better going to his right and attack with that same level of explosiveness as he does going left. Um, and you know, I mean, he could also maybe this is the year he shoots. from three instead of 37. Right. I
3: was going to say, he's always hovered around like slightly above league average. So maybe this is the year that he just rains down a a 41% season, you know, but it's hard for me to predict shooting percentages. It's like maybe they'll go in this. Yeah. I mean, if you look at his playoffs,
1: you know, obviously he had some big shots, huge games,
3: Overall, though,
1: you know, it wasn't like an incredible playoffs to for him you know, to have forty six percent from two is not that bad. But normally, where he would be from three thirty seven percent, right around there. I mean, we're there now? It wasn't obviously the struggle that it was against New Orleans, and you know, he got them right. to two, the West Finals, but he had so you know, I mean, like that like game seven against Denver was a real struggle for him too. I mean, he definitely had games.
3: He was he wasn't very good in that whole yeah. Denver series. Yeah, I thought he was going to kill them, um,
1: and it didn't. That is not how it worked out at all.
3: Yeah, luckily he. He has a very similar skilled friend and bailed him out <laughs> um but <laughs> he uh but he, he was he was so good in okc that everyone portland has against okc that everyone in portland's forgot about the denver series no, it's
1: yeah it's
3: a, just a black
0: I black mean, mark it, is there um, anything
1: that sticks out from his playoff performance where, where he could get better or i mean we could just say overall too of what might get worse for him you know 29
3: it, could yeah be I, regression to, To me, I think he just kind of unloaded it all against Oklahoma City. I think there was a real emotional letdown after beating, um, Russell Westbrook in the manner that he did. I think he poured a lot, um, energy wise into that series. And for me, he just didn't, he just looked tired against Denver. It's just the load he had been carrying over the last couple weeks of the season. So some of it might just be understanding what it takes to play, you know, deep into the playoffs. He, he hadn't really had a run like this. Uh, you know, I don't think they'd ever gotten past a game five in the second round. Um, maybe they got to a game six, but I think it was game five in the second round. Um So... This was his first sort of um, first time he's really he's been the guy on a team that got that deep, and I think just energy wise, he looks spent
1: at the end of the at the end. Yeah, of the I, I would agree with that. I mean, and also you know he's just got to play so many minutes for this group. As yeah, well. they just, just
3: don't have a. They everyone talks about load management. It's like you're just going to lose. There's just losses in, in Portland <laughs> if you, if you let them sit <laughs> out. Um, yeah, I, but I don't see anything
1: about his stat line that makes you think like, oh, this is primed for regression either necessarily. um
3: No, I, he'll eventually get there. He's six three, and he's he's closing in on 30 but I, for me this isn't the year that 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 yeah, catches and that's, up. With
1: him. Uh, I would consider that an optimistic listing uh, at 63 as well having, having seen him in person a, a few times first.
3: Okay well I I'm as someone who's 57 listed at 59 I I understand how <laughs> Dan goes
1: man. <laughs> yeah you dame and uh everyone who's ever done online dating is going to increases their their listed heights. Um how about McCollum? Um, you know I thought it was again a little bit of a disappointing regular season he yeah
3: yeah he was he was not good during the regular season he was this he was so clearly their third best player for basically the entire regular season and he's certainly not compensated to be the third guy um shooting was way down he never gets to the free throw line he just isn't a passer but i think his assist numbers might jump up because he's going to play a little backup point guard this year way more backup point guard I, i anticipate uh he played Before he hurt his knee at the end of the year, he played 88% of his minutes next to Dame. So he just didn't have very much time where he got to, you know, be the primary guy with the ball in his hands, but he was. His, his shooting was way down. Um, it, he just... He wasn't the three-point shooter and, and that he has been the last couple of years. And when he isn't making those shots, the, just the other parts of his game stick out so much. He doesn't get other guys involved. He never gets to the free throw line. He just doesn't get enough easy shots. Um, and he could be pretty frustrating in those in those moments. And then he was so, so good in the playoffs and dragged them through um, some monster games against Denver that uh, he got $100 million for his troubles.
1: Yeah, I mean... I, if we have time we can talk a little bit about what those extensions mean for this franchise a a few years from now Uh, but yeah I think for McCollum it's tough to get a lot of assist because he doesn't put pressure on the defense the way even someone like Lillard does where he's going to get all the way to the rim and really force emergency help I mean he can be deadly in the mid-range but he's not going to force help on those plays unless it's just one of those games where he's absolutely incandescent and even then you know now he did have that one amazing assist to uh in the the uh quadruple overtime game against Denver uh to to oh yeah but, but other than that, yeah.
3: But he also had just missed an incredibly yeah. difficult yeah. shot to get that rebound. So, I mean, my man does what he does. Um, sometimes it works. Yeah. So, uh, but do you think he can get better then
1: this year? I mean, it's really...
3: Uh, I think he can shoot a little yeah. bit better. Like, I think his shooting can come up... Um, I, I think his two point field goal percentage in particular, um, could tick up. I don't, you know, he, he takes a ton of threes off the dribble and he's really good at it. Um, but, but those are hard shots. So hovering around that 37% line seems normal to me. Um, but, but his two point percentage could come up and he could just, you know, uh, get a handful more layups uh every month you know four more layups every month should be a goal for cj yeah and i think
1: it, it's uh when you look at where his shooting is not awful you know i mean it may be more be- finishing around there but as you mentioned he takes few shots there you know maybe just kind of i think probably what it would be is on the days when he really has it working the pump fake get the guy in the air just get a few more like bullshit free throws like that's really yeah like where it's got to come from because you know
3: yeah he just doesn't get a lot of cheapies and he, and he needs to add that to i his mean game. he's shooting
1: 50 percent on long twos you know and 38 percent from three on very difficult attempts like it's, there's not much low-hanging fruit there for him now you can say hey they got other guys who can defend and rebound and pass on this team and they just need someone who can put the ball in the basket in isolation and that's his role and that's a valuable skill but uh yeah i mean he he does the absolute most visible part of the game well and the rest of the game you know are probably frankly a weakness so he tries defensively but you know physically doesn't
3: have yeah he's an, he's an effort guy on defense for sure and i think his skills come out in some ways more in the playoffs against the hyper scouting reports yeah. because he has four thousand counters to get incredibly difficult shots off that he's really good at making um so in, in some ways his regular season sort of like frustrations don't show up as much in the playoffs because just the shot quality is is worse and he's so good at making those tough shots all right let's talk
1: about how the rest of the rotation is going to shape out here uh you mentioned cj is probably going to play more backup point guard is that something that you have heard or are you just Just saying that, looking at the fact that there are no other traditional point guards on the roster.
3: You know, you know, when I asked early in the offseason, they said that's certainly a possibility. Um, So it makes me think that they will go there. Um, Also, just they don't if it isn't CJ, this is like my same thing with Zach. It's just I'm just looking at the roster. It's like if it isn't CJ, it's 20 year old Anthony Simons. And base Bazemore. And I can't imagine that they turn the second unit over to a guy who's played 130 NBA minutes, at least from day one. Um, you know, I, the the Pacific Northwest is very high on Anthony Simons. I think he's going to, I think he can score an NBA level. But CJ's your backup point guard. Uh, I think, I kind of think eight guys are set in stone. Oh uh, I think the starting group that we right. mentioned, Dame, CJ, Rodney Hood, Zach, and Hassan Whiteside. They're going to play. Cam Bazemore is going to play. Anthony Simons is going to play. And Pau Gasol, at least early in the season, is going to play. They signed him to play. Yeah, um, I would
1: imagine. So we'll, he'll, he'll we'll, be the backup The backup center. Yeah.
3: Backup center. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to be Scala yeah. this year. Um, so those, and then it's who's going to play that that ninth spot. Is it Tolliver? Is it Mario Hazonia? Um, it's... I think that's the real question. I think it's those it's those 10 guys. Um I think everyone else is on the outside looking in. I don't think Scal's part of the plan. Nazir little just isn't he's not close to being no, ready. He had an
1: atrocious um, summer league. Like one of the worst summer leagues for uh, that I've seen in a long time. Uh just even from like an effort level. I thought he just he the things that he was supposed to be good at, he wasn't even good at, not to mention expanding his game.
3: Yeah, and they didn't start him, which I think was kind of weird. Um they never played him with the other two rookies. Like they very little. They yeah. just kind of like made him a weird bench score in summer league just doesn't make sense but I, i'm a carolina guy i grew up in chapel hill so i I've, I've watched every one of nazir little's college games this is who i expected him to yeah. be year well and the then, yeah. he's just not he's
2: not no, there I,
1: and i think you know he had a good reputation you know he was, i think he was number three on a lot of people's boards coming into the season in chapel hill yeah. and you know what it, i i did just a mini scout on him for probably you know probably spent an hour watching his film but i mean what he put on film just was not you know nba prospect quality.
3: Yeah, he just he, he didn't know where to score in the offense. He struggled with all the team defensive concepts. He was really good on straight line drives when he had a guy who he was more athletic than right in front of him. Um you just that is not what you're gonna see in the league. You're not gonna see a guy you can athletically overwhelm with one straight line move. Um so maybe he'll get there, but it ain't this year. And I guess the end of the roster, Gary Trent Jr. I don't expect he'll have a role, but I guess if he's the guy if if you're picking a young dude who needs to come fill in, it's definitely Trent Jr. ahead a little. Yeah, in I mean,
1: I think order. Trent Jr.,
3: I liked what I saw
1: from Summer League from him in terms of his ability to take uh, some difficult three-pointers. You know I mean? I think he still gravitates a little bit towards mid-range scoring and remains to be yeah, seen. Yeah, he's
3: got a little 19-foot pull-up yeah. that he really loves.
1: Yeah, but I mean, where do you think he is at defensively right now? I think, like, if he could, like, be passable defensively, I thought maybe he could carve out some rotation minutes at a time. They
3: were worried about him in Summer League on yeah. defense. I don't know if they think... That's just the only thing they would talk about. They never spoke about his, his shooting or anything. They just talk about Gary's defense. So I think that's what they see as his big yeah. weakness and if he's going to play, it's gonna be defensively. Um, you know, in that in that game eighty two, which is like when we got the biggest sample oh, yeah. of that, of that I Blazers, mean, we're gonna be talking
1: about that game for like ten years.
3: Yeah, it's probably it's one of you know, I've been at some wild sporting events in my life. Um that's that'll that's probably gonna be in the top ten forever. It was just like, Oh wow, this is really stupid and then the middle third quarter it's like they're definitely gonna win. They're gonna come back from down thirty to win this game for sure. Um you know, I better start writing. Um, but, you know, in that game, the reason the Blazers were down 28 at halftime is because Gary Trent Jr. and uh, Anthony Simons couldn't guard the Kings starters at yeah. all under any circumstances. So it's like they're 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 way behind there um you know guys make big strides in the summer we i've barely seen this dude play nba minutes so maybe he he's he's got something in his bag but i'm not uh, i'm not convinced from what i've seen so far
1: yeah and uh, this is a, a quick aside but like they wanted to lose that game right to to and they wanted to get yeah, the jets so, the, rather than so the
3: they yeah so they they had not when when the Bla- when that game ended the blazers hadn't started their scout on okc they had not started their their playoff scout because they were they were certain that they were going to lose and play the jazz and um Part of the some of the people in the organization insist that it was rest, 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 and they wanted to get guys a full day off, and that's why they only played six guys. That's why Zach only played thirteen minutes. They just they didn't want to risk anything. They didn't, you know, they were totally content with whoever they played. Um, and then other people in the organization will admit to you freely that they were ducking OKC's length and they didn't want it. they didn't want to mess. Well, up that's good.
1: That's that's how it should be. That you have better sources in the organization than I do because uh, when I when I talk to them uh, at. At ironically, the Western Conference finals that they reached because they lost that game, uh, that they, uh, you know, no, no one would really like give me any kind of an answer at all, uh, on that one. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, i thought they should have wanted number one that should they should have wanted okc over utah and number two that just being in that side of the bracket was just so obvious uh, like to have exactly what happened happened but i guess they just uh they didn't see it that way but
3: but uh good yeah they they certainly that certainly wasn't their plan but uh maybe they've they've wisened up after yeah
1: seeing it well and, and uh i mean just to think of, maybe we can talk about this now actually i mean just to think of how much changed or, or I don't know, maybe it didn't change, but I think like CJ got the extension. Dame got the extension. That probably would have happened anyway. Maybe, maybe. CJ. Yeah. I think those yeah. guys
3: are getting paid regardless, but the ripples everywhere else, like yeah. Paul George and Russell Westbrook suddenly becoming available really yeah. changes things. Uh, houston's willingness to say screw this experiment like you know if if those dudes make the western conference finals even if uh cp3 and james harden hate each other you know yeah. they're back in the western conference yeah. finals it you know maybe they're playing a down you know that short-handed uh golden state team andrew godal didn't even play in game four against the blazers you know maybe they're playing a really really short-handed golden state team and make the finals they don't blow it up like it, there's so many ripple effects from that game um, so thanks to Amphrey Simons for, uh, you know, 37 and nine in a cool 48 minutes for changing the league for at least a couple seasons. <laughs> Olshay got an extension, right? Yeah. Yeah. So does
1: that happen if they, if they flame out in the first round again? Yeah.
3: No, 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 no. It, 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 I I think the Blazers were leaning towards keeping the, you know, keeping the band together, but the, the way this season played out, the winning that game seven on the road, it was just like, Yep. This is the crew. We're not talking about trading CJ ever again. We're just, you know, we're going to play him till he's, we're going to play till you know, Dame's 35 and making 55 million and that will be it. So what do you think of the
1: decision to extend those two guys?
3: I'm of the belief that the Blazers can't use cap room um, ever. So it's, it is mostly meaningless. It doesn't affect their cap sheet at all in, this coming summer. So, uh, you know, cause the extensions don't kick in, um, for CJ specifically. And no, ne- no, so they'll still do, right.
1: It, it's the exact right. same as it would have They're been both until the, the 2021 offseason.
3: Yeah. So it's, it's, so next summer, it doesn't make any difference. They can still decide whether they want to be a tax team or yada, yada, yada. Um, and, I just don't think that having cap room in 2021 is any valuable for this team. Maybe it's valuable to have a little bit and have that flexibility, but they're not a team that should chase max cap room because they're not chasing max stars. Like maybe they should try to create more room to have just the flexibility to sign some mid-range guys, but for me, you they are they're in a strange position where they're they've probably maxed out the talent they can acquire, so you might as well keep it on hand just for the sort of good juju stuff. That that taking care of your guys matters. Um, So whereas other teams, I think flexibility is maybe more important for the Blazers locking in these two guys for all of their primes and, and saying, look how nice we treat stars is, is probably worth it. Well,
1: a cynic would say that they already had these guys locked in for all of their primes the next two years.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, I, I really think that there will never be a Supermax contract that is ever looks good in the NBA. Or it's just, it just St- seems St- like... The,
1: Steph Curry's is going okay so far.
3: Yeah, and in the back half of his, he'll probably be awesome still at, at um, 36 or whatever, his 36. So he's only 36 got, season let's see what does he
1: have i guess he's got three years left on it right now so yeah so yeah. But they've gotten yeah. surplus value out of that the first couple of years oh back. yeah
3: yeah but but it's like the other ones they're just it's just bad news it's they're just bad news and dame is going to go down as the greatest blazer ever and paying him 54 million dollars that final season is going to be bad news it's it's not going to work out well I for i mean him.
1: like that season like goes off the end of my spreadsheet <laughs> as, as that i'm looking at <laughs> right now um but yeah i mean i think it, it's more to me that like you know i guess there's this feeling hey we're going to reward you we can do this now and because we can and we don't people might be alienated uh but yeah i mean i think maybe a year from now you look at at doing that um but it's to me it's like all right you've got them locked up through 31 already you know both those guys i think will be about that age when they uh when their contracts would have expired and then yeah is, i even if you buy that thing about the cap room i'm not quite as convinced just because in the one time they've really had a bunch of cap room and they were any good was 2016 when everyone had cap room you know in a normal yeah, and, and like if they had had cap room in this off season you know maybe things might have been different or, or you know an off season like next year where you know because most off seasons it's usually bad teams that have cap room but i mean i think right. it's more about just the risk of at a time when you might need to be moving on and just rebuilding that you now can't rebuild because you have those commitments already and that right and that locked rebuild into those guys which, you know we might say would be inevitable is now going to take seven years instead of three you know like that that's that's but and you know when you have those guys right now you think you want to do it and also the other thing too is probably can trade those guys if you know let's say they disappoint this year and they win 45 games and lose in the first round you know, maybe those guys have more trade value because they're uh, under contract under team
3: control time. yeah that, that there's there's some there's some truth to that i i think about uh, about sort of that there's some some value in that i mean I guess CJ took slightly less than the max, so it saves them a small amount of money if you, if you assume that if he hits the open market, he gets a guaranteed max. So maybe they gotta, at least in year one, uh, you know, they'll, they'll save some money if, if that matters. But, um, for me, it's teams like the Blazers with their market size, you know, the climate in the in the Portland and all those things, you kind of just have to overpay your guys. Um it, it I there there isn't to me there isn't a team building model where um where they can let Damon CJ walk and have it be meaningful. Yeah.
1: Well and I think they certainly could two years from now have stepped up with a lot of money. Maybe they would have just been too pissed off at that point that they hadn't gotten extended and they would have left or you know maybe you offer them the extension next year so I mean I think it's it's more about the years than you know the amount of money that they're making i can understand sure. and say, hey we're gonna sure, sure, sure. yeah we got to overpay to get guys to come here but that's why well, they're still productive it's just it's so far out in the future um but you know i mean this is a, a community too i mean i know that back in like the Jail Blazers era there's they really had some problems connecting with the community that you know some of the best teams like the 77 teams they were really very embedded in the community and so the idea of hey we just locked this guy in to have him be a blazer for his entire career and yeah, you know what? He might be making Kobe Bryant money when he's 35, and we won't be that competitive, but it's still good to have this guy as a legend and finish his career in a player's uniform. Like, I do understand the, that aspect of it, but I'm also, you know, kind of trying to look at things from a more dispassionate way. Listen, yeah. it's
3: a player option, Nate. Maybe maybe Dame opts out. He sees that $54 million and he's like, nah, I'm out. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna take this 54 million. I'm. I'm cool. I'm. I'm gonna go see what I can get at age 35 on the open market. Yeah, who know? I mean, who knows where the cap will be at that? But that'll
1: be into the. That'll be the new, <laughs> new TV deal. God. Uh, oh yeah. So- um. So, is there anything that sticks out to you as someone who's around the team every day that you think that's kind of counter to what some of the national thoughts or pundits like me or you know, anyone else that thinks about this team that you think is no, that's not right. I. I see it differently.
3: You know, I, I probably would have pushed back more with if they hadn't sort of retinkered the whole back half of the rotation but f- for the most part um I you know I think the 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 narrative is right like they added they added pieces that fit theoretically better next to their stars and we'll just have to wait and see if it's true um what I would push back against is uh is just picking against them to uh to not overachieve in the regular season they're they are just they're going to they're going to beat the over just by virtue of of um terry stott's stupid magic and going 18 going 18 and 2 in february and march like they they just do it every year just believe it everyone should just believe that it's really going to happen they're going to look like a 40 win team and they're going to finish with 49 wins and you're going to be incredibly stunned how they got there it it literally happens every year
1: yeah well we we can talk about what the components of that'll be a in a second here um do you see the crunch time lineup for this group at least early on the season being any different than the starters
3: I think there's an outside chance that they slide Rodney Hood up to the four and they play Baysmore at the wow. three and they go Dame CJ, Bays, Rodney and Zach Collins against teams that aren't super big um, and they aren't going to get punished on the boards. Um, but I do think mostly the starting group will be the closing group. But I do think there's a chance that you see that you see that big group or the small super small group a little bit. Um just because they don't have other great options at the four and maybe they want to just go five out and give Damon CJ space at the end of games. Yeah, that would
1: be interesting. Uh, or maybe Collins, you know, will just have fouled out or something or, or yeah. Oh yeah, I mean
3: he's he's he fouled out playing limited minutes, I think, four games last year and had five thousand six others. Like he, he he's gonna he's gonna have some time where he has to watch the last 9 minutes from the bench. So uh we'll see what they do.
1: Yeah, it's uh Collins 4.6 fouls per 36 minutes. That's uh that's a high number. Yeah.
3: And it was about what Yusuf Nurkic average as a starter. It's just yeah. um you have got to pick your spots and I don't think that Zach's really learned to pick his spots yeah. yet. He, he he picks up cheapies and it's just um, he's a he's a he's a foul he's a foul yeah. machine. I mean, man. there are also
1: people who would say. Uh, I talked to an executive once who said that uh, they did a study that uh, white big men just get called for fouls at like a high, much higher rate than expected. Now,
3: <laughs> yeah, and he's got nice hair. He just looks like a dude who <laughs> foul.
1: Uh, but it, well, but I think he joking aside I mean that ex- that was true actually someone did tell me that but like uh there's a uh you know every time he fouls he looks at the ref incredulous right I think he just doesn't quite have an understanding yet of like where his body is and what is a foul. I mean, but you know when he's getting his body into position and they're not calling fouls he could be really effective and he had just some monster games uh in the in the oh, playoffs yeah. I think I want to say it was game six against Denver yeah game
3: six he got to the podium yeah. um and he was he had five blocks right. I mean he was just but fantastic. all of those
1: were like very close to being fouls you you know, like it, it was just, totally where he's contesting guys yeah. hard on
3: the weak side and just you know he just selling out at the rim and get you know th- those times he got away with it. um
1: yeah be interested to see what the, the crunch time lineup is for this I think it's be very matchup dependent you know i mean if you're playing the clippers or you're playing the lakers uh, you know th- that's uh going to be really interesting you know if if you're playing golden state you know then maybe you can go a little smaller uh or obviously some of the teams that that don't have as much talent on the wing um so yeah let's see what else i want to ask you all right so what do you see as the big strengths the of this group?
3: Uh, I think they're going to be a top five offense again. Um, I think think they might have their best
1: offensive season that they've had with this team.
3: Yeah, I I would agree. I think they've just more shooters and and, and honestly, just more guys who can dribble. Um, That's going to be a huge bonus just to be able to swing the ball on the weak side and have someone be able to take a third dribble with purpose is going to be really valuable for them. Um they just haven't really had that wing or if they have it's Evan Turner taking a third dribble just like into a contested uh you know turnaround post shot. so um I think they're gonna be I think they're a top five offense. um I you know they've where their strengths have been in the past have been just a starting group that that is fantastic and they play you know the most minutes or the second most minutes in the league with those five guys so, Maybe this year their strength will be that they have a slightly flatter top seven and they can mix and match a little bit. Um, but it, for me, it's, it really just boils down to this: this group is a... a- the best offensive fit that they've built around Dame
1: uh, in his career. Probably. I'm really interested to see how Zach Collins is going to be used. So you could make the argument hey, you know what? Is he really that much worse of a three point shooter than Alpha Aminu or Mo Harkless? But also, is he going to be used? Is, where is, I swear, is Zach Collins going to be standing on offense? It's going to yeah, be really and, interesting.
3: And I mean, the four over the last four basically since LaMarcus left, the last four plus seasons has, has been a guy at the three point line has been a guy kind of filling in behind on pick and rolls. And as Zach Collins, Good when he fills in behind at the top of the key on pick and rolls. Like, is that a yeah. valuable spot for him to stand and him to run to?
1: Yeah, and they. I mean, he was really the offensive center when he would play in those units with Myers Leonard. Uh, uh, most totally. of the Time so totally.
3: Myers would be the guy picking and popping yeah. and staying in the perimeter, and, and Zach would be at the dunker spot. So he he probably can't hide there with Hassan Whiteside. No. So um, no, no, Whiteside will just dime him up from the free throw line after they after they double team him. Uh
1: <laughs> yeah. So that's going to be really interesting to see. And I think if they. Collins is going to be like the swing player for them. He's going to be the guy I'm watching. Me too.
3: I, I agree. He's he's Everyone's pointing to Anthony Simons, but Zach has a bigger role carved out for him and less help behind him. They don't have any answers behind him. If Zach isn't a uh, power forward, this team is on the trade market immediately or playing 34-year-old Anthony Tolliver and trying to be a top five seed yeah. in the West. Top I, seed I
1: believe there will be some games that Tolliver is going to close. I could see him. And, and actually, I mean, the way he bombs it from outside, I know he didn't have the greatest year and he's 35, but I think there will be games where he can actually make a difference. But yeah, I mean, I think he's just bit too slowed down at this point to really be like too viable of an option. Um, yeah,
3: he can play in spots. Like he's he's played, what, 12 years in the league and he shoots almost 38% from three. Yeah. Like he he has a skill that travels. Um, that's definitely why they brought him here. So, um, But I just, I just can't imagine. Imagine they play too, too many lineups where Dame and Anthony Tolliver have to guard pick and rolls, you know, six straight times to win the game. It seems like a, a bad plan.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that could be a, a struggle. But yeah, I mean, I think Collins, I will wonder if they'll be able to defend when he's off the floor. And I wonder yeah. if he's going to be a big problem for them offensively when he's on the floor. And so I think you you, you still kind of have this issue maybe with this team that just too many one way guys, you know, I'm not sure. While they might have changed the ways for those guys. That's yeah,
3: they just, their, their, their struggles are going to look different, yeah. but they're going to be pretty, feel pretty familiar.
1: Yeah. Where I mean, and, and, you know, I'm sure Portland fans and, you know, the coaching staff is just like, all right, I'm just so sick of them not guarding Aminu and Harkless in the playoffs. And you could tell, I mean, that those guys were not finishing games, even. Uh, yeah. Now, granted, there wasn't anyone for them to guard in the last two series, but still. So, um, let's see. Other strengths for this team. I mean, obviously, off the dribble shooting, pick and roll. I mean, the, the two of the best guys in the league doing that. Uh, rim protection, uh, those are always things that, that they're going to be good at. And in particular, with Collins, Whiteside, you know, Nurkic is an underrated defender. Even Pau Gasol is going to fit right into that.
3: that he is, because he just can stand in the right spot and be seven feet tall. Um, I think other he might have some issues just because he's 39 and really slowing down. But he's for what they want to do, and in, in small spurts, I think Powell can be an okay defender. A weakness I see for this team... Is passing I don't think they
1: have You know Lillard is A decent enough playmaker But he's not a natural passer He's kind of a made passer And he does it more with gravity Than necessarily with vision And he's really the only And he kind of
3: picks his He kind of picks his spots He says okay early on I'm setting everybody up And then come you know Last eight minutes Screw that I'm I'm not um, I'm not looking to pass the ball anymore Um, He kind of He gets his He gets his assists in bunches When he's kind of getting his guys going
1: Yeah and like You know Nurkic and Gasol uh, Maybe they can run some stuff Through those guys at the high post or, or Collins can do a little bit of that. Whiteside obviously is an atrocious passer. CJ is maybe the worst passing big scorer in the NBA. Um, Hood is not known for that. So that that's maybe the one thing where these guys it, you still don't necessarily see them as like all right, we're going to ping the ball around, really get the defense moving. Uh, transition I think is another big weakness for these guys.
3: Yeah, they haven't been a good, very good transition team for years. Um, they they they're okay in sort of secondary actions. Yeah. You know, they run, they get stopped, and they they get you in like a half screen ramble and get a, get, you know, a shot with 15 on the clock. Um, But they're not a, they're not a fly down the floor transition team. they just, their two guards just don't sort of fit that um, mold. You know, CJ isn't going in and dunking on people. Um, You know, Dame would rather pull up and hit a 29 footer in transition then then push all the way to the rim and kind of put pressure on guys well they
1: never get turnovers either so the running opportunities uh, aren't aren't as exactly as exactly uh for other teams um
3: and yeah and i worry
1: about the depth too i mean i think backup point guard simons i think you know he's a young player i may believe in his scoring and his shooting you know i don't believe in his distribution i thought he really i actually was impressed with his defense in his first summer league and i thought this last summer league he was really bad um
3: the blazers think he can yeah. defend the the Blazers think he can he can he'll be fine because I I was talking to uh, someone with the team and I was like well I mean who's who the hell is he going to guard and they were they were just adamant that he'll be fine defensively so they believe in him they think his length will will be valuable enough they they want to play him and Damon CJ together. They want to play the three of those guys together. So, um, I don't know how much they'll do that, but they certainly envision sort of those three guards spending some time on the court together. I'm going to make a prediction about
1: this team. This is, this is like an off the wall prediction. I All predict right. that they will trade their first round draft pick. At the deadline this season, a, or not? Maybe not this year, but a first-round draft pick at the deadline this season.
3: I can see that because um, their their window is small. I mean, they, they it's, it's they got to do it now while Damon CJ are really good. Um, and they kind of have they've kind of bought into some cost control players like they they think Simons can help on his rookie deal. They think Zach can help now pre pre extension. You know, so uh, I can see that happening. That they, yeah. they would sort of load up on a little more money.
4: They've got some expirings
3: with Baysmore and, and Whiteside so uh yeah i think that's not that that is um maybe like bold in its specificity but i, I think it's, well, it's the, reasonable i
1: mean the other thing that seems like such an obvious move for these guys is the kevin love trade that seems like something that we're going to be hearing about all year if love stays healthy
3: yeah uh i, I think everyone else but the blazers likes kevin oh, yeah. love i know um t- Last summer, they made a brief inquiry about wh- what if we take on some bad money, f- like pre-extension? Um, what if we take on some bad, m- or just, sh- excuse me, just after Kevin Love signed that extension, what if we take off some, like on some bad money from the Cavs in order to get Love and, and Cleveland turned him down for what they were yeah. offering. So they've at least explored it once. Um, but, and in theory, he's a really nice fit offensively with Dame. Like he just really compliments what he does so well. Yeah. And I mean, they do
1: the problem is love is a center and a bad one defensively so you, again you would wonder like hey how far are you really going with kevin love at power four but i mean just they would be so unstoppable with him and uh damon cj i mean that would just be i mean it would still be an upgrade over zach collins you would have to say i mean so yeah so but yeah, yeah i mean it'd be interested to see what's there you know would it be white side would probably have to be the matching salary um Sure. You know that that's really the only thing. I mean, unless it were McCollum or Dame, which it wouldn't be. And then you kind of have to get someone.
3: Yeah, yeah. Baysmore is an expiring, so it's like it's it's what. And if you trade Whiteside, you kind of have to get back a starting level center because then you just don't have. I guess the idea being that
1: by that point Nurkic would be would hopefully be ready to come back. But
3: yeah, I'm uh, I'm skeptical on Nurkic's contributions this year. So uh, he that factors into all my reasoning. Um,
1: All right, let's uh, let's get on record
3: here: predictions for
1: the Blazers season number of wins for this group um i will go first this time i usually try to reason through this by looking at like what i think they'll be offensively and defense so i think offensively i don't know if they'll be the number one offense and eh, they could be right up there actually with the demise of the warriors so uh yeah I, I i think they'll be a top five offense and really the huge question for me is just defensively how much are they going to miss aminu and turner and uh and harkless and you know what are they going to get out of white side defensively is it i mean he was at at times years ago in miami a defensive difference maker can he be that again in stock system is he just going to kind of be average is he going to be below average because he just won't move and he won't execute um you know i think I, i'm going to predict that they're going to be a little bit below average you know i think they kind of like 17th on defense 16th on defense although again we haven't seen them much below that other than you know they had like half of a year i think it was like 16 17 scene before yeah. they traded Plubley where they were just awful. Um
3: Yeah, they were one of the five worst defenses in yeah. the league and they just they uh, they had to do and something. And then they
1: turned that around with that brilliant Nurkic trade. I mean, uh, like Olshay has definitely made some pretty big moves uh, with this group when it it seemed like, you know, maybe they were kind of settling into mediocrity to kind of keep sure. the window ajar and we'll see whether that he in fact has done that again this offseason. Um Yeah, so I think that would, that would probably put me man, it's so it's so tough because of that history that that you said. I and I have, I haven't looked at any of the overrunners. I've no idea what it is uh, i reserve the right to change this obviously after seeing everyone in preseason but um <laughs> i'm gonna go with and also i think health too i mean like it lillard and mccollum if those guys get hurt there's a problem but those guys usually don't get hurt so <sighs> i think i'm gonna go with
3: 47 wins for this group yeah i think i i think so yeah like i said i think this is a top I think this is the top five offense in the league easy. Um it's just like you said, the huge question mark is where they are on defense. Yeah. I think well also I guess I'll I think, say
1: this too. They're top five offense in the league when those two guys are out there. You know, I mean how yeah, is oh, yeah, the bench yeah, yeah. going to look is still a major question to me too.
3: Totally. And and how do they how do they stagger those guys to avoid yeah. just some nightmarish bench lineups that they kind of leaned into for the first two and a half months of last season? Um I don't think they'll do that because they don't have $75 million of Evan Turner kind of, like, haunting them and figuring yeah. out that they that we have to figure out how to use this guy. I think that they kind of just got overwhelmed by that pressure last year where it's just like, oh, man, like, we we have to figure out a solution for ET. They thought they had one. It didn't work. And then they kind of had to course correct in in February. So I think they'll – for me, I think they'll – I think they're going to figure out how to play Damon CJ less together, get them on the court a little bit less. I think that helps. Um, I think this is a 49 win team. Yeah. Because I think they're going to be, I think they're going to be right around a league average or or, like you said, below average defense. I think, I think they're going to be like 15th in the league again because I think what they do scheme wise, they have guys who can sort of fit their scheme and they're going to overwhelm bad teams just with score. They're going to, one of their 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 sort of tricks was that they went on the road and won. A, they just beat bad teams on the yeah. road. Um, which was is the sort of their regular season formula? I kind of still think they do that—that um, that they just don't drop those just crap games in Charlotte um, and and come away with a couple of those easy wins. Yeah, I, I think this is a 49 win team. Um, I I keep telling myself that they won 53 games last year and made the Western Conference Finals. And if I think in my head that they're basically the same talent wise, <laughs> that, that that's kind of lateral that they should be about there again. But you know, I think they won a handful of games that. They They maybe shouldn't have. Uh, They were probably better when both CJ and Nurk down than, than is reasonable. They probably just played yeah. a little over they, their heads. They for also won two more games
1: than expected based on their point differential.
3: Yeah. So they, they, they've they stole a couple. You know, uh Mo Harkless doesn't make a three-pointer in, in LA on the second last night of the season. He had scored the final twelve points. Um that just doesn't always happen. Then they're you know then they're whatever four, fifth in the West all of a sudden. So yeah, I, I think this is a 49-win team is where I would put my prediction at. What about a best case scenario? The the absolute best case scenario is this is a fifty Seven win team because Zach Collins is like a a legitimate starting power forward in the NBA and also the you know one of the top five backup centers in the league and he just he just seamlessly fits into what they want to do in a big minute role and that Anthony Simons is ready um, he's ready to ride from game one I kind of think he's can score in the NBA right now it's just what else he can do um, is the big question but the best case scenario for me is this is like a fifty seven win you know battling for number 1 in the west type of team
1: yeah i'll go with 54 i, I think where yeah you know, I, I thought they're a little over their heads last year i thought they're a little over their heads the year before that yeah uh- big surprise (laughs) that everyone says that uh but so i think i'll go with 54 the idea being they can stay right about where they were defensively last year and then take more of a step forward with just the better shooting that they're gonna have maybe damon cj can get a little bit better um yeah i mean i do think i mean probably the biggest thing that we haven't talked about enough though is like yeah they got to the west finals without him but yusuf nurkic was their second best player last year i I know you said that and then he was a top 30 player but he was so important to their regular he was so I mean and he was you know, so good. RPM wise, he was you know, one of the best very underrated defensive player taking up space in Stotts' system. So I do think it's a big downgrade from him to Whiteside, even if you get like whatever good Whiteside is. And I think also Whiteside is is a bit of a health risk as well, as is Gasol. You know, I think Whiteside really you know, he'll he'll play through injuries, but he's had like this hip issue, he's had knee issues, you know, mm-hmm. he's uh I think he's been hampered by that and you know, he's he's thirty years old now too. So um despite perhaps not acting like that at times. So uh I I think that's the other thing, is just I don't think they can get... Even if everybody else gets better and they get more shooting, I don't know if on either end they're going to get the same production at center. I mean, that's probably... Yeah, I mean,
3: Hassan Hassan Whiteside Whiteside's absolute peak is one of the 60 best players in the NBA. You know, he's not like... Yeah, was. was... was. I
1: I don't think he has that in him still at this point.
3: No, neither do I. And and just, I don't think you're... Like, I, I think... The thing that maybe I would push back, you asked me what I would push back on, is is just the idea that Nurk is going to be involved in this team in any way. I would consider him not on the roster. Um, yeah. you know maybe he'll play but we saw how Paul George played you know nine months after that injury we've seen how Gordon Hayward came back it takes guys yeah. a little while to ramp up
1: yeah I mean now um, George he came back he was injured on August 1st and he was back by like the beginning of April so that's a little and this will be yeah, but,
3: but didn't he play pretty limited oh, minutes yeah. in those when no, he, he came did, back but that's the you know we're
1: giving Nurkic another two two three months beyond George's sure time sure left. sure sure
3: yeah so um and, and Hayward yeah, I, had another I agree with
1: setback you. where he had to have another mm-hmm. surgery in the offseason right and right that also involved his ankle so I'm I'm I mean, I don't think he's going to be that great. I agree with you, but I would be surprised if we didn't see him on the floor at least to some degree this year. That that would be yeah. no.
3: I I think he'll play. I just don't think he'll. play. I just can't see him as a. Di- maybe he'll be an upgrade over Pau Gasol, and maybe if that's yeah. the if that's like the sort of line we're giving him, yeah, he'll be almost certainly he'll be better than thirty nine year old Gasol. Yeah, I mean,
1: and Gasol is going to play fifty games even if even if he's you know in the rotation or deserves to be in the rotation. Like he's just foot injuries, you know, uh, knee injuries, that seems like he's really
3: just... Yeah, I mean it, it, I don't think it's 100% certain that he'll be ready for training camp just based Good on time. what he said. Yeah, the, based on what he said is that he said my goal is to be ready for training camp. He was, you know, he's been cleared for 5 on 5 full contact, but he's not uh, he's he hadn't done it yet. Um when he last talked to the media. So it's like, it, it, are we 100% sure that he's going to be ready? And will they rush him out in October? Or will they say, you know, let's, you know, give you a couple yeah. weeks and let you
1: get I, ready? I think I'm going to lower my prediction to 46, actually, because of that Nurkic thing. I think it's just like getting to 53 was just like so reliant on him last year. And I, I'm not quite as sure. So so 46 is my official prediction, which I still reserve the right to change for the season. Uh, worst case scenario.
3: They're a forty-one win team. That, and, well, I'll even go deeper yeah. than that. Their worst case scenario is they win thirty-eight games. Yeah, um, yeah I
1: mean, not, and that's assuming you know, guys, not you know, Dame Lillard doesn't miss forty games. You know, we're just just like normal health from this group. You know? Yeah,
3: I mean, the, the normal, just sort of normal run of play stuff. Yeah, is that is that Zach is a nightmare at power forward. Uh, Hassan Whiteside is just uh, you know coasting and getting empty stats, and 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 Damon CJ cannot drag along uh Hood, Collins, and Whiteside front line to that many wins and that the bench, which has some real question marks, none of them pop. Like, Hazonia, doesn't pop. He's just a bad player. Who you know we've we've kind of seen in bad situations. Uh, and and amfrey Simons is a twenty year old who just isn't ready to play in the NBA and all those things. Yeah, I think I think if things go this far south, they're they're like a thirty eight win team in the in the worst case for me. Yeah, I mean here's another
1: way to be concerned about these guys, right? Other than Dame millard and C J McCollum, I don't know that anyone has an established level of performance that's like above average for their role. You know, Hood starting small forward has really you know kind of failed in that that role defensively and you know has been more of a I mean played some of his best basketball in Portland, but you know, I'd been had some real struggles in the years before that. And then, you know, Collins, we talked about the uncertainty there. Whiteside really, you know, fell out of favor in Miami for a reason. Uh, and then you know even the bench guy Simons, you know, as your backup point guard, uh, or you know at least taking the role of a backup point guard.
3: Yeah, but backup yeah. big minutes guard. He's gonna play twenty five minutes. Yeah, tonight. I mean, yeah.
1: Hazonia is you know has never been any any good for a good team. Uh, Tolliver is thirty five. I mean, there's Gasol might. be. Yeah, it, it, Baysmore might be yeah. slightly yeah, above yeah, average. That's right. Yeah, role. he's he's probably the one I would say if he's coming off the bench, he might end up having to start. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly.
3: If, if but if he's your if he's your backup small forward, backup two yeah. like uh, two three, he's probably above. Above average for his spot yeah. um and, and so but yeah but i uh, agreed you're talking about if he comes off the bench he's above average back yeah and i do think also just guard.
1: getting rid of evan turner is going to just help the bench offense so much um
3: yeah it'll it, in theory it opens up a lot of chances just to have better players have the ball in their hands and that is always a good plan
1: yeah so i think i'm a little more optimistic on the floor than you are uh, at 41 uh you went with 38 um all right. I, th- I think we're good here. Thanks a lot. This is uh this is fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a lot yeah, of fun. Where,
3: <laughs> Dunked on debut.
1: <laughs> where can everyone keep up with yourself?
3: Um, they can follow me on all social medias. Actually, you can only follow me on Twitter at Mike G rich. Um, you can also find my written stuff at NBC sports Northwest. And I have a podcast locked on blazers, part of the locked on podcast network. Um, it's a multiple times a week show. It's bite size, um, looks at the blazers from someone who is in the locker room. Um, I have a lot of fun doing it, so yeah, check it right, out. Yeah,
1: I'll have to uh, make Mind maiden. Or actually, I, I did it with uh, with Eric when he was doing it a couple of times. But uh, okay, to, uh,
3: we'll get you yeah. on there to uh, you yeah, know some cross promotion. Yeah, not not
1: to invite myself on your podcast because that's uh, it, th- that's not like great great etiquette. But I'm uh, I'm available. I'm very available.
3: If, oh uh, yeah, well listen, I got your contact info, Nate. I'll see if I can if my people can connect. <laughs>
1: All right, man. Thanks. This is great. Yeah, appreciate it. All right, it's been a marathon session here as we're trying to get caught up on all these teams getting into the season. But be remiss if we didn't bring in the Atlanta Hawks, a team that I think holds significant intrigue this year, much more so than these past couple of seasons. And uh, to talk about them with us is Brad Rowland, who talks about the Hawks on a daily basis at Lockdown Hawks and also writes for maybe one of the best, uh, most balanced team sites out there, probably some of the most talented writers there, too. I know uh, Jeff Siegel writes for you guys uh, as well, among a, a host of others, uh, and that's uh, at Petrie Hoop. So, Brad Rowland, how you doing, man?
4: I'm excellent. I uh, appreciate the kind words. Uh, fans don't always love when you're balanced, but uh, I, I, really, <laughs> I really, really appreciate, actually, uh, you saying that, because that's kind of what we're uh, striving to do. So, uh, I'm glad it's being received well, and I'm always happy that you asked me to come on. Yeah, well, thanks so much uh, for joining
1: us here. And so, where I want to start with these guys, with them bringing back a fair amount of the same cast of characters, though they have had some significant substitutions, uh, as we'll get to, is to just talk about where this team was uh, last year. You know, they had some really nice runs, a a significant stretch of 500 play. Trey Young really came on through the second half uh, of last year. They also really struggled in the beginning with John Collins out, uh, his return was significant also but if you're going to try to describe you know a baseline level of play for these hawks or or that they established last year that you think you know is like a a way to project where we were going forward of like when you start factoring the personnel obviously the personnel changes what stretch would you look at uh, for this group and how did they play during that stretch
4: Yeah, I think the second half of last season, you know, halves are kind of a broad uh, way of describing it. But once Collins got back, because they they opened last season 6-23, and and most of that came without John Collins, they were really, really short at the power forward position with Collins unavailable. And, uh, you know, for my money, he was probably their best player last season in an overall sense. So taking him off the court kind of made the first month or two kind of tough to gauge. Uh, I do think, though, once he got there, Pretty much that whole whole stretch is, I think, fairly indicative. They went 24-37 and with Collins in the lineup, which is not fantastic by any means. They were more of a fun, bad team than a team that was actually good last season, but they were more of an NBA team. They were largely competitive defensively they were not good all season long um and honestly if not for the Cavs um and I guess the Suns as well we would, we would have been talking about them as the worst defense in the league uh and don't even, forget the Knicks and the Knicks, so, so, the Knicks
1: so yeah let's I
4: mean, not, <laughs> not give them short shrift that's true there were there were <laughs> there were a few but you know if you, if you took the Hawks defense last year and put it in a quote normal context they might have been the worst defense in the league so you know I say that I say that they were a fun bad team without kind of just you know, taking away from the fact that they were really bad on defense. But I I do think the last, you know, 60 games or so was fairly indicative of a team that was better than their record overall and uh, generally competitive and fun.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. After December 15th, uh, my recollection was Collins came back like pretty early December. I want to say is, am I remembering that right?
4: Yeah. He missed the, he missed the first uh, 21 games. So yeah, it was, it was somewhere around mid December, maybe towards Christmas somewhere in there.
1: Yeah. So after December 15th, 14th uh, on offense uh, per cleaning the glass, but as you mentioned, a, a pretty rough 28th on defense, uh, even uh, during that more successful stretch. But yeah, I mean, they had some really rousing wins. You know, the the home win o- over Oklahoma City comes to mind where they really, and they really looked unstoppable at times. I mean, that double drag that I've loved to talk about uh, with Trey Young in semi-transition. You know, I mean, you saw even like Boston had like go to a zone to try and stop that. I mean, they, there's a lot of things that they were able to find offensively that proved very difficult for the opposition.
4: Absolutely. I mean, they had, they had some landmark wins that they, they beat Philadelphia, uh, I believe yeah. twice down the end of the season. And, you know, that wasn't a full strength Sixers team necessarily, but, um, they definitely had three, four, five wins that you can point to to say, look, this is what this is supposed, this is supposed to look like, particularly on offense. You mentioned that stretch. They were league average or so on offense. And I think, you know, looking ahead a little bit, I'm sure we'll talk about this. The offense is clearly the path forward to being, to this being a good team. The defense has a long ways to go, but, um, there were certainly stretches in which, um, they were really, really good on offense and you know at the very least they've built this roster in a way that offense is the top priority they kind of went through a couple of drafts in a row where they kind of kind of issued defense almost entirely and we're looking offense and i think now they're starting to run into form with the way they drafted this year and hopefully looking ahead to the future but it's definitely an offense first team and a team that um will provide some memorable moments on end on the floor we'll see how they look defensively but uh if they have it going they're really tough to stop
1: yeah i think uh Trey Young's performance last year, I think, deserves a, quite a bit of discussion as well because uh, they couldn't score when he was off the floor. Backup point guard, uh, especially once Jeremy Lin, they moved down from him, it was a big problem. And they don't have a traditional backup point guard really on the roster this year either. Certainly not someone who's established. But with Trey Young off the floor last year, basically a worst-in-the-league-level offense, about a 102 offensive rating. Uh, but the defense got a lot better, too. They actually <laughs> – uh, uh, and now, is that all Trey's fault? It, yeah, some of it probably is. <laughs> but but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say all of it. So they actually were a little bit better with him off the floor than on just because the defense was so much better. But it was really the offense it was seven points worse, basically, per 100 uh, without him on the floor. So that's a, an interesting – way to start with things but what did you see from him last year and is there anything that really jumps out to you as realistic improvement that he's going to make this season uh for a rookie off of a rookie season that was above expectations even for someone like me who had a number two on my draft board
4: yeah, I think anyone, even people that were really high on Trae Young would acknowledge that he was better as a rookie than he was, quote unquote, supposed to be. Um, I wasn't as high as you were on him in the draft. I did like him, but I didn't have him as high as you did. And I, I'm looking to be wrong on that. And that's totally fine. You know, he was he was a lot of fun to watch as a rookie. Famously, he had a really, really rough November when all of the uh what I thought were kind of ridiculous uh, discussions about him last summer during summer league. And some of the overreaction theater came back to uh, bite him a little bit more in that November where he really struggled. People have termed that as a slow start to the season, which actually wasn't true. He was actually quite good for about the first three weeks of the season. And yeah. then he had a really, really bad month. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he had the game that got basically got Ty Lue fired in Cleveland. Yeah, he, he uh, went absolutely. He right went on. absolutely crazy against the Cavs and uh, he had a good game against the Lakers on the road, a couple of good games early on. But, you know, November, it kind of had his uh, maybe not a rookie wall because it was pretty early, but that really rough stretch, we just kind of couldn't make a jumper. And that makes it tough for him. So, I mean, that's probably the area that you would focus on in terms of just overall efficiency. He was fairly efficient in terms of true shooting, 54%, which is better than I thought it was going to be early on. But the three point shooting, didn't quite arrive in the way that people might have thought that it would in terms of just having the ball go in the basket, 32.4% for the season. That went up to about 35% after that rough stretch early on. So that's probably more of a real number. And the good thing, if you're the Hawks, is that Trey Young is already being guarded as if he's an elite shooter. That's one of those things where gravity matters so much that if you didn't look at the numbers and you just watched him being guarded, you would not have guessed 32% from three last season. Uh, Defenses were really game-playing for him. Part of that is the fact that the Hawks didn't have too much else going on, but also he really has a reputation as a shooter and obviously his range is quite impressive as well. So, I mean, looking back to look ahead, his post-all-star game stretch got a lot of attention with good reason. He averaged 24 and 24 and 9 basically um, after the All-Star break. It's a relatively small sample. The sample that I use as like a more reasonable expectation baseline for this season looking ahead is kind of the same one we talked about earlier, going back to December. The last 58 games of the season, he averaged 20, 20 and a half points and 8.2 assists per game with 43% from the floor, 35% from three. Um, that, that's really, really, um, strong, obviously, for a first year point guard and that, but, but. In, in comparison to the post all-star stretch where I'm not sure you can expect a guy to average basically 25 and nine for his full second season. That seems yeah. like a lot. Um, so I'm more focused on that, on that broader sample size where I think that's more of a baseline and he's going to have to improve th- three point shooting eventually, or the gravity is going to sort of weigh in a little bit. And between that and getting to the line, I think getting to the line more often helped him quite a bit down the stretch. You've talked a lot. I know about his foul drawing, it's already quite advanced and it's just gonna get better, I think, as he gets more physical and he's clearly been trying to get stronger during this offseason as well. But you know, getting to the line is number one, the turnovers I don't really worry about. It was a lot last year, but yeah. you know, a lot of the a lot of the point guards that you see um, with the ball in their hands all the time have high turnover rates. I'm not terribly worried about that. It's just a lot of rookie stuff. I guess it becomes a an issue somewhere down the line, but when you're an elite passer, which he projects to be and kind of already is, you know, it doesn't really matter as much
1: yeah and a couple notes on that too i mean it pretty high turnover percentage 17 percent of his possessions are finished with a a shot foul or turnover ended in turnovers that's a pretty high number but generally rookie point guards turn it over a lot and it was john hollinger had some similar research you know probably over 10 years ago now saying that that's one of the things that you can most expect a player to improve and so that's uh that's definitely low-hanging fruit and uh, also worth noting too that you know 28 percent usage he was the only guy who could dribble out there a lot <laughs> of times for this team yeah and so that's a, he had to make every play and certainly there's a lot of pressure on him at, at some point uh, maybe even as soon as this year it, you'll see that he'll not have quite as much pressure to do that um so yeah and then of course the other thing I think offensively you could get better at is if they want to run him off some more screens have him do some more off ball stuff I and mean, he did not get a ton of catch and shoot opportunities but in the limited amount that he was able to do that both in college and i think last year correct me if i'm wrong uh he was very solid on catch and shoots and so if they can add more of these steph curry off the ball type of stuff for him that might be another place for him to expand uh, his game uh, as well and then uh playing any defense whatsoever would also be uh helpful
4: yeah you know clearly the off ball stuff before we get to the defense a little bit is going to have to be a discussion the off ball stuff though um is it's a good point the Hawks are saying the right things about Trey I think last year you know they threw a lot at him as the on ball guy, and he was sort of the sun, moon, and stars offensively. It's going to be that way again this year, um, for sure, but maybe not to the quite the extreme. And I do think that they want him eventually to be able to work off the ball. Part of the problem right now is that he just, he doesn't really know what he's doing off the ball. Um, yeah. he, he hasn't done that a lot in his career. I think going back to even high school and college, he was just the guy on the ball, and that's kind of what happens with point guards for the most part. But I do think that, um, his next evolution offensively, it would help if they had somebody to, operate the ball <laughs> operate with the ball while he's on, while he's on the floor to try hat to try to go ahead and try this but I do think that they want him to learn that aspect of the game and have it be a secondary weapon for him that it really wasn't last year cuz he's he's obviously a shooter and that and provides that gravity so if he can sort of learn the tricks of the trade a little bit that would very much help but uh yeah to your point the defense is the biggest concern we we all we all kind of know that and I think they gave him a little bit of a pass last year because he had such a responsibility offensively, but you know, eventually, it's going to have to go from you know horrendous to just pretty bad. that That seems that seems like a small gap, but it's actually not. If he just if he's just below average, that would be a massive improvement, and we have to just see that before it actually is something you can make on.
1: Yeah, and also, I think just having more behind him as well, more of a defensive culture and ecosystem, and you know, this may not be the year that that happens yet, but yeah, I mean, even just getting a little bit better would be nice. So I think we can turn now to some of the off season additions and let's start with the big addition, the number four overall pick Deandre Hunter. They pl- traded a boatload to get him. They took on Solomon Hills, 12.5 million and basically dead salary this year. They traded number eight. They traded number 17. They traded number 35. They traded what are likely going to be two calves second round picks that they got in the Kyle Corver trade years ago. It's a first rounder, but it's top 10 protected in the Cavs Uh, will not be out of the top 10 this season. So, uh, am I, am I forgetting anything? (laughs) Did did they give up anything
4: else? I I think think that's, I think you have it covered there. Um, they certainly give up a lot. I I know, you know, listen, listening to you and Danny, I I know I am higher on Deandre Hunter than you guys are. But even with that said, they overpaid in the trade and I, I regularly talked about that, um, over the offseason as someone they, who they uh, got some like second rounder back yeah they got a little was bit it number back. like
1: 57 or something like that I, I can't remember but
4: yeah and they and yeah. they used that deal to move up and get bruno fernando in the second round so it wasn't as if they that's what it was yeah got nothing back but i think you know in addition to overpaying and draft capital it wasn't a 0 to take back Solomon Hill uh who they later flipped uh for for Chandler Parsons in a deal with uh, Miles Plumlee but yeah it was kind of a uh a smorgasbord of assets that they sent to New Orleans and they they overpaid in the trade i think if you gave them true serum, they, they would probably admit that they did that. I think that they got, uh, they kind of fell in love with him, which it's not hard to see why from a fit perspective that they really like DeAndre Hunter. And yeah. that's kind of the one argument on behalf of the trade is that he's a fantastic fit with what they want. You know, they still overpaid. And yeah, I, I don't think that Hawks fans or any other fans nationally are going to see Hunter, um, even in a good scenario being the pro-typical top five pick because it's not really what he's going to be i don't think long term but he he is a fantastic fit and someone that they actually need if it works out yeah and you can certainly make the
1: argument that everyone was saying what a crappy draft this was for a long time and so hey why not get the fit that we need we've been complaining that they don't have enough defense on this team in the long term and he, they evaluated him as the best defensive guy available and i will say travis schlenk for good or for ill like you know it's worked out in some cases it hasn't in others and uh, and even in the case of Trey Young, you know, they could have drafted Luka Doncic and they ended up drafting Young instead. They basically Young and, and ended up being Cam Reddish. So we'll see whether that actually works out. Certainly their evaluation of Young, I think was a good one, but maybe their evaluation of Doncic wasn't a good one, uh, there. And, you know, I think most people would still have Doncic well above Trey Young in terms of their future, but they've been willing to make th- these bets on their scouting assessment you know that's where travis uh made his money that's why he got hired and he had a bold vision for this team when he got hired and he's attempting to implement it and he's netted himself a a contract extension out of it as well so their their bet is that deandre hunter is the fit is the guy why do they believe that
4: i think um they are probably higher on his offense than you might think that they would be. Um, I, I yeah. am not necessarily in that camp, but I think he did show some things as a, um, you know, in between score, advantage score at the college level. You know, first and foremost, it's really tough to evaluate someone in that Virginia scheme on either end of the floor. So. That's a tough thing to kind of parse both numerically, statistically, and also with your eyes. Um, He obviously had a great, a great game on a big stage in the final four, which probably helped things, but they liked him for a long time. I, I had heard that. I think it was even stronger than I had heard during the draft process. Um So offensively is the underrated side, I think, in their opinion on DeAndre Hunter. Defensively, you know the on ball stuff is kind of already there they they, they definitely evaluated him as the best on ball defender in the draft and i'm not sure i'd argue with that um again we have to learn though about his defensive stuff aside from being on the ball he's a legit 68 physical defender who played well in that aspect in college but what we don't know about Hunter is like what what kind of game changing appeal he has in a secondary you know off ball team defense kind of way because it just wasn't necessarily always there in college and that's that's a big difference like it, there's value in having a guy who can just be the player that you send at the best players in the league on the wing but the next step in that about and that evolution for Hunter is whether he can be a genuine terror and with low steal rate, low, bro- low block rate, there's some worry, at least for me, that he can't do that. But I think the Hawks just view him as a game changing level defender. And if you factor that in with what they already have and their three best players before this, at least their three best prospects are all offense first prospects, none of whom project to be, you know, even, if, even with improvement, um, anything better than average, maybe slightly above average defenders, they really need a lockdown guy. I think that's what they're betting on with Hunter. Whether you agree with that evaluation is a different story, but they see him as that, you know, sort of prototypical 3 and D, maybe slightly game-changing defender type that every team would love to have. And, you know, small forwards, particularly guys that are legit 6'8", that have that size, are not easy to find. And if you find one, there's huge value in that.
1: Yeah, and I think he's certainly, I projected more as a 4. I agree. I think he could be very good on ball. Uh, but like you noted, they may need someone, you know, especially if John Collins is going to be your center or, 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 your four, uh, they may need someone who is really, you know, not just a good on-ball guy, but can wreak havoc as a help defender. we didn't see that from him in college, both statistically, and also just in terms of just the quick twitch, uh, aspects of his athletics I mean, he can get up for some big dunks when he's out in space, but he doesn't have a lot of quick pop. To get up, block shots, uh, and then the recognition, you know, is not really something that I was incredibly impressed with. Of this guy is like just gonna crash out of nowhere, show up in unexpected places, be a terror as a help defender. But we'll see. Could, could end up wrong there, uh, about Hunter, but they gave up an awful lot to get him. I mean, I, my guess would be that at least one of the guys that they was drafted with the picks, one of the picks that they gave up is gonna end up being better than Hunter just on his own. Um, just because this wasn't a particularly like top heavy draft and and he wasn't one of the guys I would have had in the very top anyway. And then, you know, these other guys who were drafted have a a lot of talent as well. So that's, uh, but yeah, they obviously are going to be relying on him. Do you think he's going to start?
4: I would guess so. I mean, they've been fairly fairly quiet since Summer League about kind of everything, and their roster was basically finalized at that point. But if you you look at this team, I'm not sure who else would. I think he has to be almost the starting small forward opening night because they don't really have another option in that spot. And I know we'll talk about the roster more, but it just seems between where they are in their development cycle, um, where they drafted him, and who else is available, he just seems like the only realistic option to start there.
1: Yeah, perhaps against teams that don't have as much size on the wing on ball guys on the wing you could get away with some of the the smaller guys there you know maybe you could bring in crab to start as an undersized three or or uh Bembry, although you know kind of seems like he's a little out of favor now with some of the the additions that they've made the other big pickup that they had of course uh in the draft was cam reddish did not really see him or we didn't see him in summer league at all It seemed like also he was struggling with this core muscle injury during the season. Perhaps that's why he was so disappointing at Duke. Did show probably more defensively than people realize at Duke, but had one of the most disappointing seasons just in terms of statistics that you will ever see from a guy who gets drafted in the top 10. Uh, But what do they expect from him this year?
4: Yeah, Reddish was the guy that I had been hearing even during the season that the Hawks liked in the draft. He he was the player. He was the player basically the entire way that I heard the most about the Hawks liking. And by the time they got to draft night, we kind of assumed he was going to be the number eight pick. And then they traded the number eight pick, and it became Hunter yeah. and all that stuff. And the, he he was he was actually available at ten. I think Travis Shank was very very happy about that. Um, you mentioned. How kind of rough it was at Duke. The numbers. I mean, honestly, it's kind of unprecedented to have a player, um, that especially a non-point guard, be as be as as inefficient as he was, particularly on two-point shooting, um, and still be drafted in the lottery. Um, you're you're definitely banking quite a bit on his pre-college evaluation for Cam Reddish because you referenced the defense. I do think that his defense was uh, pretty good at the college level, and that's a yeah. uh, underrated thing about him. He's a pretty decent athlete, and he has some good instincts on that on that, on that end of the floor, but offensively, you're really, really banking on his EYBL stuff, his AAU stuff and his pre-college evaluation, which I think he's a talented player. Um, They do think that the injuries held him back. How much so is kind of up for debate, but he does he does have the core muscle injury. In fact, as of about a week ago, he had still not been cleared. And that was longer than it was. Yeah, it was a problem. It was longer than expected. Uh, I I believe it was Chris Kirchner of The Athletic reported that he had not been cleared yet. And I've been poking around on that for the last month or so. All the indications are that he's going to be ready for training camp, but training camp's in a week, uh, so we'll see. But regardless of whether he's available or not, he has not been playing, you know, organized basketball for several months now. And combine if, if, when you combine that with how bad it was during his freshman season in Duke, I think he's certainly a more long-term prospect. And early in the season, I'm not sure what you can rely on with Ken Reddish because you know guys who struggle that much in college generally are not suddenly effective NBA players as rookies. Yeah, and he's going to have some guys who actually have some talent to beat out with Allen Crabb
1: in the mix. Now, certainly overpaid. They picked up that first-rounder that went into the Hunter trade uh, to take on his $18 million or so for this season. But when healthy, can hit shots and move around off the ball. He's a rotation player. Uh, you know, Vince Carter, I mean, he'll probably play more at the four. But they've also got Jabari Parker. um obviously Herter and Young are probably going to be the starters. DeAndre Bemery still has given them decent minutes at times, and they are going to need a little bit more ball handling on on that second unit. Evan Turner, I guess, is going to be the backup point guard, but he's still the same size as Reddish as well. So, yeah, I think he will have an uphill climb, especially if he's just getting back to playing competitive basketball. Now, you know, where they are after the trade deadline and, you know, if and when they fall out of contention and, you know, a lot of those guys I mentioned are not part of the long-term outlook. So you imagine he's going to get plenty of playing time eventually, but I agree with you. I think right at the start of the year, he may not be necessarily in the rotation.
4: If that's one of my biggest questions, honestly, I, and I look forward to asking it um, at Media Day and beyond, is just kind of what the plan is there. Because I think it's very it's very easy to see that if if you're trying to win games in October, he probably isn't going to play for you. But for this team, the priority is not October. It's it's the, it's the future. And all, the guys you just referenced are all going to be better than him right away, but none of those guys are so much better and none of those guys are necessarily part of the long-term plan to where I think Reddish will probably play more than he should. And that, that's that's a smart thing for me. I think this is still a, another rebuilding season for the Hawks and they'll take a step forward, I'm sure, from where they were last year, but it's still not a situation where you should be trying to go in win-now mode and that means playing your lottery picks. Um, and Reddish needs court time because everything we just said, he's going to have to grow kind of in front of everybody's eyes. And if it, if it's going to work out, he probably needs to get some reps uh, in a hurry. So they pick up Evan Turner, Crab. obviously. Um, we
1: can kind of go through the rotation here a little bit as, as we started to do. Is the plan for Turner to be the backup point guard? They picked him up in a straight-up trade of uh, sour 2016 contracts for uh, Kent Bazemore.
4: Yeah, it was pretty funny uh, because of – the the work that was being done behind the scenes to immediately get the word out that Turner was the backup point guard. As soon as the trade happened, um, there were were leaks happening that says the plan was Turner to be the backup point guard. And uh, then they didn't sign anybody else, basically. The only other option is a two-way guy, Brandon Goodwin. Um, So I think all indications are, at least in October, it's going to be Turner as the backup point guard. And I I don't love that, candidly. I I, I would like them to have another option. But I sort of understand the thinking to a certain degree, particularly on defense. I think he might be able to help them quite a bit there. And it's, it's unconventional to be sure. And Turner has, of course, played sort of that role at times in his career. But I mean, not, not a ton of times has he, has he been basically just called upon to be the only primary backup point guard. So that's, that's sort of new ground for him in some ways as well. And that, that is clearly the plan. We'll see how long how long they stick with it or how long he'll be there because he's an expiring contract and uh, probably isn't going to be long for the future. But, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's the plan for now as far as I understand it.
1: Yeah. And, part of what he was brought in to do in Portland, the party line there, with uh, the same kind of leaks you were talking about as soon as he, as he was signed, were, all right, we're going to play Damon CJ off the ball now. He'll, he'll handle the ball up top. We're going to run these guys off the ball. Uh, but, you know, it really failed. He had seasons where he had some of the worst RPMs in basketball because he just doesn't get guarded. And maybe having him up top helps a little bit more there than if he's standing in the corner. But he's also not really dynamic enough as a pick-and-roll threat, you can just go under on him. He's not going to be able to pull the three. Uh, he doesn't get to the basket with enough alacrity that really there's going to be help forced where he can unlock his passing. Mean, he's a competent passer and dribbler and, and can get into the post a little bit. But yeah, as a backup poker, I mean, I don't think, like, you can really just, like, run, pick, and roll with Evan Turner. You know, like, like what is what is the offensive identity of this team going to be with Trey Young out of the game? I think you really hard-pressed to find what that would be.
4: I I totally agree, and that is one of the reasons I didn't love this as a a sort of a primary look. I think Evan Turner, you know, you could argue that offensively his quote-unquote value would have to be on the ball because he can't shoot at all. But, you know, that's more of a secondary thing for me. I would love for them to have an option, you know, far be it for me to project this, but if if Trey Young were to miss 20 games, I'm not sure what they would do. Uh, I mean, it's, it can't be overstated how bad it might be offensively if Trey Young is unavailable for any period of time. He he is very durable. Going back to college and high school, when he played uh, 81 games and could have played all 82 last year, so it may not it may not bite them. But if he tweaks an ankle and misses two weeks, you know what? I'm not even sure how they fill 48 minutes right now offensively. But yeah, as soon as, as, as Trey Young leaves the court. I'm not sure what they're going to be able to do. They can try to play, you know, herders. They, they like herders playmaking a little bit more than some people do. I tend to agree with that as well. I think he can be a little bit interesting on the ball, but not, not as a primary guy. You have Jabari right. Parker. I guess the theory would be that maybe Jabari can eat some, uh, eat some innings as an offensive engine for you on the, on the second unit, but none of these options are perfect ones. And, uh, because, the only other option is Brandon Goodwin. I think, you know, they're going to have to see what Turner's going to give them. But I'm expecting the offense to struggle whenever Trey leaves the floor.
1: Yeah, I, I'm in full agreement with you there. And especially for a team that did not use the room exception this year, uh, which they had available. I mean, hey, I would have like Jeremy Lin was couldn't get anything above a minimum. Like, why not bring him back? You know, I, I, just to have one more option there, especially because and maybe this will change this year, but their offense is so pick and roll heavy when Trey is on the floor. And now you just to completely lose that ability and have to find something else uh, when he's off the floor, I think it can be very difficult for them. Um, Why the hell did they sign Jabari Parker? Oh, Nate. And and give him a a (laughs) two-year deal with a second-year player option at $6.5 million?
4: I I was going to say the second part as soon as you asked me the first part, because I I know you... uh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure you still are, but I know for a while you were higher on Jabari than most people were. Um, I, I have the same question that you have, particularly with the player option. The player option was nonsensical. I, I don't understand, A, how Jabari was able, was able to even command a player option with the market seemingly that he had or did not have. Um, but, the upside because yeah, he, he signed what like 10 days into free agency. or something Yeah, like it was that. fairly, it was I was, I was already in Vegas and had been there for a while. Yeah. So yeah, it was, <laughs> it was not, it was not early in the process. And, you know, it's a situation where you're buying low on a guy and I guess, but I guess you're betting on Jabari Parker's talent, but if that works out the player option, he's just going to opt out. And then you've lost the value on that contract, particularly in a year where you're not really trying to win necessarily right now, any value that he gives you this season, um, you know, it's great, I guess, but the value is kind of gone if he is op- if he's opting out and if he struggles, he's going to opt in. And what's the point of, you know, player options are just tough anyway for someone in that kind of range as a player. Um, and then fit wise, you know, I guess you could argue, as I did a second ago, that they want his secondary creation on the uh, second unit. But. You know, defensively, they already have a bunch of problems, and he is clearly a problem defensively. So I didn't love the fit. The player option didn't make sense to me. The only argument is that you're betting on him being in a situation where he'll be in a real system now for the first time in a long time. Like, it's not Jason Kidd coaching him, and maybe you get you get him in a good training staff, you know, former Warriors training head. Um Chelsea Lane is now in Atlanta and has a good reputation and all that stuff. So maybe that's what you're selling yourself on, but the contract itself didn't make a whole lot of sense to me.
1: Well, I wouldn't have minded it for a different team, you know, it's, and maybe you can still say he's young enough to have some upside. At, at, I think he's 24 now Uh the has had, you know, last year was really his first full season back from the ACL. He did have some really good moments offensively with Washington after that trade. Uh But it's just, it's not, doesn't really seem to be what this team needs unless it's just going to be, Hey, he's going to score for us on the second unit. And they, they feel that they need that, but they can, It's kind of a problem with their own making without the, uh, without having a normal backup point guard. Uh, yeah, and then just you know to not even get that second year uh, of team control if he does do well. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a move that has a lot of upside. But uh, and, and you know you just drafted uh, Hunter, who I think of as more of a four, um, Reddish, who is a three. You know a lot of guys that kind of that same position um i guess the next question to ask is just what's the front court rotation going to look like it seems like they're going to start alex len at center john collins at the four is is that your assessment as well
4: yeah, they've not said that definitively, but they're certainly operating and have been for a while as if Collins is a, is a four primarily. Um, he'll probably play some five. Um, but I think they've transitioned to, into maybe not even transition. I think they were always more a- along the lines of Collins being a four than I was, but they've even gotten stronger with that in the recent past. They, they're going to treat him like a four that can play the five, not the other way around. Um, and Alex Lynn was actually sneakily pretty good, particularly late last season. And I think he's by far their best option as a center if it's not John Collins. So those two guys, I'm assuming, will will be the starters. And for now, I'm going to assume Jabari is the primary backup power forward the kind of the going back to that real quickly the problem with jabari as the primary backup power forward is that if you want to use john collins as, as sort of a uh crossover to a backup center role you can't play jabari parker and john collins together at the four and the five i mean i'm not sure how you're going to guard a soul if you if you yeah. do that well i mean they can <laughs> they i mean they, <laughs> they might just, they might try it, it but they may uh, not
1: look good i mean but yeah it's uh yeah but the, the i agree with you well but then and then your other problem too i mean you might say hey if you John Collins at center next to Jabari is no good, but look who else their backup centers are. I mean, they really yeah. you know, Fernando. You don't want to assume that he's going to be ready. Uh, you know, I thought he, his summer league was up and down and, and Damian Jones, I've gotten an up close look at hasn't played that many minutes, but when he has, I thought he's been one of the worst defensive centers in basketball. So, so uh, I'm not sure that Jabari and Damian Jones is it would be any better than Jabari and John Collins, frankly. And Damian Jones isn't any good on offense either.
4: Yeah, that's one of my honestly it's it's more of a low key question, but one of my actual questions that I have going into training camp is what's gonna happen at backup center because the Hawks even, you know, Dwayne Deadman was very, very good last season, but even when he was playing very, very well, he wasn't playing more than twenty five minutes a night or so. Um and Alex Lynn, I'm expecting to be sort of in that same vein, like as a twenty five minute a night player, that leaves twenty plus minutes for backup center, and maybe you get eight to ten from John Collins, maybe. And then you gotta fill that other those other minutes with either Fernando or or Jones, and neither neither of those guys is ideal. The Hawks do like Fernando quite a bit. They traded up for him. I thought they they've always said on the record a few times that they treated him like a first round talent. Um, at the same time, he's still going to be a rookie center, and I'm not sure he's going to be ready to go right away. But you know, when your only competition is Damian Jones, you know maybe it is going to be Fernando in October. We'll, we'll see. But regardless, either way, there you don't love that option, even if I am fairly high on Alex Lynn, you know, for instance, Alex Lynn, by the way, kind of became a shooter last year uh, under the radar. Yeah. Um, no, I don't know if you
1: heard, he's going to be gunning for the all-star team. this
4: yeah, year. Yeah. I laughed at that. Uh, Alex is not shy. I, I, enjoy talking to Alex. Um, but yeah, he he's, he's a confident guy, which I appreciate. Um, but you know, in, in the last 20, I think it was like, uh, 19 games, actually, he shot 40% from three on 5.2 attempts per game. Like he was getting them up last season at the end of the year. Defensively, it's not, Great, but he's still a he's he's a massive guy. He's not going to kill you on defense. He's not a huge plus, but he's a legit seven 2 can kind of get in the way and protect the rim. But as we're talking, as we're talking now, all these offense, all these front court guys are all better on offense than defense. Um, with the potential exception of Fernando, every other guy basically leans offense in this front court. And when your back court also leans offense we're talking about offense a lot and that's probably for good reason because the defense um, going back to that. Once again, the defense is gonna be bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's a, So
1: who do you think uh, we haven't talked about Bembry much at all. Do you think he is going to be playing much? And, and then Chandler Parsons too, whom they traded uh, they aggregated together Solomon Hill and Oh God, who's the other guy? Miles Plumley. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's right. Miles me I was like, is is two two SAR Sixteens for maybe the ultimate SAR Sixteen, uh. But they got Chandler Parsons. I mean, I think that gives them another roster spot. And I think Parsons, if healthy, could contribute more than Hill or Plumley. Uh, so how do you see the backup wing rotation shaking out?
4: Yeah, it's interesting. Bembry is a a flex point in some ways because I know that Lloyd Pierce likes Bembry. He was very um. Open about praising Bembry, particularly on the defensive end of the floor and the way that he attacked the rim. Um, he repeatedly called him the, the best athlete on the perimeter they had last year, for instance. Like, they like, uh, I know Pierce likes Bembry. A- at the same time, he was not a Travis Lank draft pick and he's sort of on the outs. And if you look at the roster the way it is now, because he can't shoot, and I, I know they're going to want to assign some time, clearly 200 and Reddish. Bembry's in this hybrid area where he might be like the fifth wing. And that, that guy is usually going to play for Lloyd Pierce, who was playing, you know, 11 guys pretty regularly last year in games. Yeah, I mean, no, Trey only played 30 minutes a game, you know, they're not like,
1: which is part of why I'm a little concerned about the bench. Because, uh you know, they are going to play those guys. They, they're kind of more of a Nets approach of just, hey, we're a young team. We're not going to overplay these guys.
4: For sure. But, yeah. I, I think we're going to see a little bit more of the young guys. I think we're going to see a little bit more of Young and Collins and Herder this year, um, minutes per game wise. But they're not going to be playing high 30s. It's just not going to happen. So... Bembry's in that weird area where they kind of need, because they're going to be playing Evan Turner, as we talked about a second ago, they're probably going to need like Alan Crabb shooting, for instance, uh, particularly if, if, uh, Turner's on the court, they're going to need Herder or Crab out there with them probably to get some coherent offensive spacing going. Like I have a hard time seeing how Bembry plays with Turner because man, Me neither. uh, they, I mean, defensively it'd be fun to watch because those guys can both play defense and fly around and that's Bembry's primary value, but I don't know how, I don't know how you play those guys together. So, Weirdly, getting Turner and playing him the way that they project to play him seems to squeeze Bembry, even if they like Bembry. So I'm kind of projecting Crab to play more than Bembry and kind of be that primary backup shooting guard, maybe even play some three, as you said earlier in the podcast. But um, those two guys I think are going to play. We some some sort of role when they're healthy. Parsons is a complete wild card. As you referenced, the the health stuff is just out there. He is a skilled guy who I think can play still if he's healthy, but who knows? And then you have Jabari and Vince who can both, I guess, theoretically play some three. I just wouldn't do that (laughs) on this team unless you have to. I mean, emergency only last year, Carter was essentially they were telling everyone that would listen that he was a primary four. then they had some yeah. then they had some injuries and he had to play some three but for the most part they're treating him like a power forward at this point so it's kind of a it's kind of a mixed bag I think the only guy that I'm confident is going to play off the bench um in October is Alan Crabb and I think Reddish will of course eventually play and maybe play early but everything else is kind of up for debate to some degree
1: yeah and perhaps Bembry could supplant Turner as the backup bunker. I mean, Turner does have the big salary. He's got a lot more cachet in the league. I think there are a lot of things that memory could do better than him, frankly, but I agree that that it's very difficult to play those two guys together. And, you know, it seems unlikely that uh, any kind of extension talks with memory uh, would be entered into. I
4: would be stunned by that just because of the regime change and just the lack of a, like of a, of a defined role. And as you talk about all the time, those cheap extensions just don't happen. So, I just can't see it. Um, what do you see the crunch time lineup being for this group? It's really interesting. Um, I, I think because they, they largely view Collins as a four that makes it, almost easier to carve this out. If you wanted to play Collins at the five, it, it becomes harder because they don't really have that. That small ball four type unless it's Hunter. And I know you see Hunter as more of a four. From what I hear from the Hawks, they see him more as a three right now, but it, and he'd be the only guy really that you might be comfortable with as a small ball four option. I guess Evan Turner would be an interesting. Yeah, one. I mean, if Jabari really
1: has it going that. Yeah,
4: game. offensively, he might have it. Um, But yeah, <laughs> I think it might be the starting five, honestly, which is Young, Herter, Hunter, Collins, and Len. Um, but that kind of depends on what the other team is doing. If if the other team is not playing a traditional center, then you can't have Len out there. Because there were games last season where the Hawks had to just take Len off the court entirely when they were trying to play smaller and switch on things. Because Len's just pretty much incapable of doing that. He's, a, he's an old school drop center. And if he can't be on the court, that fifth guy... It's probably going to be Jabari or Evan Turner. I would, I would imagine Um, maybe Alan crab. If you're, if you're behind and trying to get offense on the court, you might try to play crab and Herter together on the wings Uh, defensively. That might be an an issue, but defensively is already going to be an issue. So maybe you just try to outscore teams.
1: Yeah, it does seem like outscoring teams. Hawks games are going to be exciting this year. I think we can, we can all agree uh, on that. They're they're going to get out in transition. They're going to run and they're also uh, probably not going to be stopping anybody. Let's see what else. So, is there anything that you being around this team every day that you think is a little bit different than what the national narrative? Whether it's for people like me, or or from you, know, your Stephen A. Smith, or, or NBA out or whatever it is, that you think I ah, you know, I, I really disagree with that, or, or something that you think is an underrated story about this team that doesn't get enough press.
4: This was easier last year when I I thought Torian Prince was uh, so much worse than everyone thought he was, uh, ha, having watched him every day for a couple of years. Uh, he he would he drove us insane. Uh, but now that now that Torian is gone, um, no, I I think it's an interesting question because you know the Hawks are. I won't go as far to say as they're a media darling now, but they kind of have that easy to talk about exterior now where it's basically these guys are young and fun and it's a lot of you know highlights of trey young throwing lobs to john collins and that stuff's all real because trey was very good john had a great year last year they have this young talented up and coming team kind of vibe to them and as a result of that people are projecting a lot of just kind of linear regression like can they make the playoffs and all this stuff um my i'm not even sure how, how hot this take is but people don't people at home don't necessarily like this in atlanta i think the supporting cast is actually worse this year than it was last year
1: Oh, I I'm in total agreement with you there.
4: So maybe 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 it wasn't a hot take, but I think
1: particularly. Well, I, I, no, I think it is compared <laughs> to like to to a lot of
4: people. Yeah, well, and, think, and part of that is the yeah. fact that you know the two guys they added their lottery picks are rookies, and rookies are generally not very good. Even if you believe in Hunter, like I do, um, as someone who could potentially be a pretty pretty decent rookie because he's got some experience and physical tools and a low usage rate and all that stuff. Even with that said, you're, you're playing at least one rookie. Big time minutes. You're losing Dwayne Debman, who I thought was their third best player last year. Um, he was very, very good. Um honestly for two years, but especially last season. So and then Ket Basemore wasn't great last year. He got he got banged up, but I think that trade going from basemore to Turner was a downgrade for instance. So, you know, yeah, well, and also consider too, I mean, Lynn is out of the league
1: right now, but but he was fine. He was like, he was, and may part of it may have been unsustainable, but he was actually really good for them as a backup point guard last year. Yeah. He he shot the lights out in the mid
4: range. Like he kind of did his Jeremy Lynn thing, uh, pretty effectively though in the first half of the season. So, yeah, I mean,
1: and he would play some with Trey as well. You know, they're, they really, they don't have that option in the slightest this year. So, yeah, I think their bench is going to be significantly worse.
4: Right, I think projecting ahead, you clearly you like the core now better than you did a year ago because you're adding two lottery picks to it. But in terms of just this season alone, are they going to win more games? I think probably, but at the same time, that that has more to do with expected growth from the guys who are returning. Your, your Trey Young, John Collins, Kevin Herter types than it does with actual improvement um, other places because. Even if, for instance, even even, even if you buy Alex Lynn, you're still going from Dwayne Dedman to Damian Jones. And that, that's a massive, or, or Bruno Fernando, that's a massive downgrade, just for, as one example. So that, again, it's not, not, not a huge national uh, hot take, I don't think necessarily, but I just think the, the supporting cast, at least for this season, is probably overrated, particularly if you, uh, if you talk about Jabari, Jabari is a pretty polarizing figure, but in terms of contributing to winning Jabari's not done a lot of that um maybe he, maybe he can do it maybe maybe he's just kind of going to be even more of a late bloomer he'll be healthy and be better but um you know i, I just don't, i just don't love the supporting cast particularly if just for this season alone
1: yeah i think that's a, a great way to put it uh we've hit on some of these already uh but uh big strengths uh, for this team that we haven't talked about yet
4: um i think as a general rule like Offensive pace, just pace in general. They, they, they led the league in pace last year, and I think it wasn't just pure bad pace in the way those process Philly teams were. You know, they, they they were playing too fast sometimes, but it was for a reason. Lloyd Pierce has a plan. Particularly, like his shot profile is one that you like to see. It's a lot of high percentage looks around the rim and threes. There's not a lot of mid range going on in this team, and I think long term that's a good idea. And the other one is offensive rebounding, which often gets overlooked, but they were a top 10 offensive rebounding team last year. Most of that is John Collins, who's just an absolute terror on the offensive glass. But that's a sneaky thing that can help you offensively um, that gets underrated. And I think it for a long time, it was overrated. Rebounding in general was overrated. And now it's almost underrated, particularly on the offensive glass. If you can maul teams and you kind of, have to maul teams when you're playing John Collins at the four and uh fortunately he's set up to do that so those are those are two I think kind of low-key strengths they're obviously better offensively than defensively but you know amid all the talk about you know three-point shooting and alley-oops I think just the shot profile and offensive rebounding are uh, two things that are going to help them offensively
1: uh weaknesses I mean you know we said we said the defense overall I mean I think just protecting the rim in general you know ha- having alex len as your best rim protector i mean if he's right there in position he can have an effect but i think he's just is too slow he doesn't have a great shot blocking or help instincts damian jones is you know gets probably the least out of his tools as a rim protector of anyone i've, I've ever seen <laughs> collins to as well he'll get some spectacular blocks but you know, not really a, that great of a help defender and he's going to be away from the rim more. It sounds like this year, if he's going to play less center. So that's something that I would look at there. Uh, we talked about the playmaking when young is off the floor, uh, uh, just, I think getting to the basket as well for this group. They don't really have anyone. And you know, maybe that can become reddish in time. Although he was just a
4: atrocious
1: finisher at Duke, uh, but other than Trey Young, I mean, they just don't have anyone who can break the paint uh, on this team, even out of a pick and roll. So that's a, that's another concern that that I have uh, as well. Um, and, and we talked about some of the depth issues. Anything else pop out to you?
4: I totally agree with not being able to attack the rim a ton. You know, Trey Young got better at that as a rookie, but he's kind of it. They do believe, and I'm not sure I do just yet, they do think that John Collins can kind of – be more of a creator on offense than he has been in the past you know right now he's more of a play finisher and is really good at that really efficient at that they think he can do a little bit more than that maybe it would be a secondary thing there um and benbury would be the only other guy that like, kind of regularly yeah. attacks the rim but yeah that's a good point all, all of these guys even they're good offensive players your kevin herders your Allen Crabs, those guys are still not gonna break you down off the dribble and go to the rim so and, and, and yeah. deandre hunter same thing i mean maybe maybe as a secondary option and in, in, in his face-up game but as a three probably not a ton of that either so
1: yeah yeah i mean herter will have some impressive finishes sure. at times you know he likes to go up off a of two feet and then double pump finish with the left hand in the lane you know that's a, he's got some bounce off of two feet when he can load up in particular so i mean he's he's got some ability to get to the basket but obviously he's, he's made his living as a shooter um this is something i wanted to talk about briefly here. How good do you see young Collins and Herter, their nucleus for right now? What is the ceiling on those fighters? And Collins, to me, is the one that I probably have the most difficult time with because he's extremely efficient. They played better offensively when he was there. He's a, a really good rebounder, has these defensive limitations so that I don't think are going to get much better. But is he like, Can he become this like amari stoudemire blake griffin style of force where he's just so good offensively that it doesn't matter that he has these defensive issues or is he more just like all right he's a really good
4: play finisher but he's a play finisher i think it is going to be closer to the amari stoudemire level than people realize you know collins I think if you polled an average NBA fan, they'd have no idea how good his numbers were last season. Like he averaged basically almost 20 and 10 on 62% shooting. Um, true shooting, I should say. Um, and it didn't feel like a fluke to me. Maybe, maybe some of that is a little bit fluky efficiency wise, but he feels like a guy who is going to be that productive for the next several seasons. And part of that's Trey Young being awesome at setting him up, but Collins was doing a, a miniature version of that even as a rookie. So I, I think he has star upside offensively. Um, and st- it's, it's kind of tough in today's NBA to profile that because you, you just don't see a ton of guys his size doing what he does that, that are not centers. He's a very... You know, Amari is the comp that I, that I use a lot too. You know, young Blake Griffin is a comp that gets thrown around a lot. Not, not current Blake Griffin, who's like a primary facilitator type. But, um, you know, just that energy, athletic, but also the skill level. You know, last year he really impressed me and he's certainly exceeded my, my expectations about his offensive game overall. The shooting has come around. He's got comfortable with the ball in his hands a little bit on the perimeter. He's not just a, he's not a pure play finisher anymore. So I do think that I agree. The, the defensive, swing just in general and honestly this applies to all three but collins is the one guy who it probably matters the most with because he's playing a big a big man position and it's just important that you become a solid enough defender you know honestly even within last season collins you know, early in the year was just terrible defensively. And I I don't say that lightly. He was really, really like harmfully bad defensively. And the last two or three months, it became, it was like, okay, now I, I kind of see how this might work. um. But that's honestly the biggest swing, because if you have three guys and Herter, I think projects to be okay defensively eventually, but Young is going to be bad forever, probably. So if you have your three core pieces and none of those guys are going to be plus defenders. There, There is a ceiling on that. And you, you better be awesome offensively. And they have the ability to do that because I do think that Collins and Young could both be, you know, like top 20 offensive players in the league, Young even higher than that. But it's going to have to manifest. And that's why I think, I think that, I'm pretty sure that's why they went out and got Hunter and Reddish in the draft, because they they know that if your two best players are Young and Collins, you better build perfectly around them because otherwise you aren't going to be able to get the enough stops to win at the highest level.
1: Yeah. Many have compared, Oh, Trey young is Steph Curry and Kevin Herter is Clay Thompson. And you know, there's the Travis, <laughs> Blank, uh, yes. connection there. Um, and, and you know, we don't need to get into what the, uh, validity or non validity of that comparison, but I actually see this team, if everything really works out, which again, this is hitting all these guys hitting, like, you know, some of their highest percentile outcomes as being kind of more akin to some of those Nash Suns teams where, all right, you're not going to stop anybody, but you got Trey young, you got John Collins and you're sure as hell not going to stop us either. And you know, some of those teams were a little bit better defensively than perhaps it it was thought at the time, just because people weren't as focused on pace adjusted numbers. You know, some of those teams approach league average defensively. And I think, you know, that probably is going to be the ceiling for this group now, if you can get just like an unbelievable defensive center who could really make a difference with these guys, then perhaps that changes. Uh, but then you're also, you know, you're losing some of the spacing. If That player is probably not going to even be able to shoot it as well as, say, Len can or or Deadman could last year, and I agree Dedman, uh was a really good player for them last year with, you know, a center with two-way ability. I wouldn't quite put Len in that category. So, But that's kind of how I see this team... Uh, Filling out here and, you know, getting into being a low 50s, mid 50s win team of just being, you know, close to number one offense, but, you know, 15 to 20 in defense at best, uh, but kind of a similar model to the Suns team. What do you think of that?
4: I I totally agree. And that's honestly a discussion that we've been having um, both online and offline for a while now around this team is, you know, it seems you know, the Warriors thing has gotten got, gotten out of control in some ways, just because of uh, the Travis Slank thing and the Curry-Young comparisons. But I, I totally agree. If you're looking for a modern contender that makes the most sense, I've leaned on those um, Nash Suns teams as well. I think Nash is the best comp for Trey Young as well, just as a one-on-one thing. It's not perfect by any means. Young is more of a scorer, but um, I certainly like that comp better than Curry. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think... It would, it'd be nice if they had their Sean Marion to kind of just do everything defensively that yeah. he was able to do but just as a as a theory um, of a team that's you know a top three offense and more of like a middle of the pack defense kind of getting to 50 50 plus wins that's probably the best way for this team to do it and I think you know it's more of a future-facing conversation in some ways but they have all this cap space and they're gonna need a, another guy somewhere along the lines you know people always get wedded to the guys that are there now um, for this team to be what they want it to be, they're going to need, they're going to need another top flight option somewhere along the way. Even if they hit on their draft picks, even if Herter takes a jump and Hunter works out, they still they're still going to need one more guy, and it, whether it be a center like you referenced or someone that's like a hybrid forward option that you can slide Collins to the five, whatever whatever you're going to need to do, they're going to need to hit on their next big move. And uh, that's when we just can't foresee, but I'm totally with you about the sun's comparison. That is the path for this team to be a contender is to just be awesome offensively and just do enough on defense to get by.
1: Yeah. I'm really interested to see what they do. They should have, assuming Jabari opts in, which is what I would project right now, but you never know there. And then, you know, they probably have about 10 million bucks worth of draft picks, depending where they end up with, uh, that Brooklyn pick, assuming Brooklyn makes the playoff uh, and their own first rounder, uh, you know, they probably project to have about $60 million in space this summer. Not much on the books even going beyond that. John Collins will get a substantial raise the following summer, but he has a pretty small cap hold at $12 million. If they want to drive that out, they could uh, increase that or or just roll that over to next year as well, have about $60 million in the summer of 2021. So, yeah, they do have a lot there. Now, of course, these guys will get expensive eventually. Who knows what the appetite for the tax is? Maybe you can't just – yeah, all right. We're going to throw sixty million dollars worth of four-year deals out there next summer, um, and they probably are also going to want younger guys who can grow at this core. I it's also it's also the worst summer
4: yeah. possible to have uh, sixty million dollars in cap space. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not it's not
1: a terrible restricted free agent class. We'll sure. see who ends up extending. Um, you know, I think there are a couple of guys out there, but you know, then of course your maybe the strategy would be, hey, we're going to put our eggs in for some restricted free agents, and then if that doesn't work out. And we'll just roll it over to to twenty twenty one. You know, if the other teams match or they just can't get the guys that they want or something like that, maybe that's the way it'll end up. Um, you ready to do some predictions here? Ooh, uh, cautiously, yes, I'm ready to go. All right, uh, I uh, will let you go first this time. I I went first with Mike Richmond on the on the last uh, segment, so uh, take it away, please. This
4: is the projected record segment.
1: Yeah, yeah, projected okay. record for the uh 2019 20 atlanta hawks
4: i have to be honest and say that i i really don't like this because i i um last year i actually was fairly confident in whatever i said um but this year I, i'm wavering quite a bit uh i will be consistent because i was asked this question and we did a round table and i had to give my answer um in public a couple weeks ago i am going to say 34 wins which is basically right on the vegas projection I don't love that, and I think I'm using Vegas as a cop out to some degree. But it's my uh, little hedge on both sides of internal improvement from the young Um, guys—Young, Collins, Herder—a really bad defense. And uh, yeah, I'll I'll go with 34 wins. And uh, by the way, the schedule is brutal early in the year and really easy late in the year. So it's going to be sort of the same track as last year, in my opinion. They're going to start slow and then. you'll be reading somewhere, Nate, in March about how good the Hawks are playing because they're playing against no one down the stretch. (laughs) Well, and
1: I think it's an advantage when you look at a team's overall season, especially, uh, although perhaps less so with with them as I'll get to, but just as a general proposition, you'd rather play bad teams late when they've given up uh, versus at the start of the year. Those teams can be a little friskier. But you could say, hey, if they're not in contention early and they're totally out of it, you could see moves with some of the veterans made – earlier rather than later um, it's a very sneaky and, and setup
4: this year for this team because you know I think uh I'm gonna use Jared Dubin's numbers on this but I think the Hawks had either the hardest or second hardest schedule before the all-star break and the easiest after or something like that it was a really really sharp split and for a team that is so young you you're, you're talking about for, for this for year. this year sorry um yeah. for a team that's so young you would anticipate that they're going to be better late than than early. So if they're going to be bad early on their own and, and then they're playing this tough schedule, the, the wins might be hard to come by for a while.
1: Yeah, I, I think I'm going to end up lower on them. I, I mean, offensively, I think with Trey Young on the floor, they're going to be very, very good. I think this will be a top 10 group uh, with Trey Young on the floor, especially if he are, and Collins are out there together. I think they can perform at that level this year. I do expect those guys to take steps forward. Herder should be better this year as well. Hunter, eh, you know, we'll see. I mean, his shooting, they're going to need him to just be more of a spot shooter this year. And his transition to the NBA line, you know, no, I mean, he shot it well at Virginia, but not a ton of volume. Again, that's kind of a weird system. But, you know, I'm not going to just assume that he's ready uh, at small forward I, necessarily. I have, a, I have
4: a comp for you real quickly on Hunter as sure. a rookie um, that I kind of stumbled on this week. What do you think of Hunter not perfectly replic- replicating, but somewhat replicating what, what Mikhail Bridges did last year as a rookie.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting like playing, playing a ton, um, playing a
4: ton of minutes, low usage role, that kind of archetype of someone who, you know, on a, on a bad defense, going to be asked to do a lot on a bad defense and just performing okay, but not blowing anybody away.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, Hunter to me has a, a little bit more size yeah. and Bridges is kind of more, more of a playmaker. Um, I think I believe in Bridges' ball skills a little bit more than Hunter's. and yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty good comparison. Um, just for rookie season
4: only and, more than anything. Yeah. just It's more about role yeah, almost sure. because yeah. looking around him, they're just going to need him to do a lot. And I think Bridges played like 2,000, yeah. 2000, or plus, 2000 plus minutes last year as a rookie because he just had to. They just had him out there all the time. And I think Hunter's going to follow that same path. Bridges was a better shooter in college, for instance, had more range, et cetera. But I, I think that that's kind of... At least in my head, I kind of stumbled into that as an expectation of just nothing terribly exciting as a rookie, but someone who isn't going to hurt you actively either.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and I think the swing point on that is going to be the shoot. Yep, I you know, agree. I, I could see him being a little lower volume, seeing him want to put the ball on the floor maybe more than he should if the shot's not falling early in the year. And, and as a three with uh, with Collins and Len in there, I mean, they really need him to space the floor, and I could see him potentially having his playing time reduced and going with guys like crab, especially at the end of games early, just because they feel like they need more shooting on the floor. And Hey, guess, guess what? Like we're not stopping anyone regardless, even though he, of course is a big part of the future of the team. So um, getting back to the overall projection, I, I think, you know, I do think this is a top 10 offense with young on the floor. I think with young off the floor, things really could fall apart, especially with the Evan Turner experience when he's just killed, the Blazers offense, whenever he's been out there without, especially without Damon CJ the last three years. So, you know, I think they could really fall off to be a unit in the twenties when young is off the floor. So, you know, I think it ultimately, maybe this is the 12th, 13th, 14th best offense. Uh Obviously if young misses time, it's a big problem as we talked about. And then the defense, I mean, they are going to be, wow, uh, some atrocious defenses this year between the Suns and Cavs we haven't talked to I haven't talked about them yet but uh Knicks are probably going to be pretty darn rough too um there's going to be a lot of really ugly looking defenses out there this year um who else did I think was going to be really bad that we did just recently oh Washington oh yeah yeah, that's atrocious too so yeah that so saying that this is a bottom five defense i mean there could be some defenses that are just like historically bad i don't know that these guys quite get to that level but i mean i think there i mean is there any reason to think they'll be better defensively this year I, i
4: don't think so um i guess if you want to you know they could be a little bit better if you believe in collins improving because you know, Ryung, I, I do think that Young is going to be slightly better. Now, whatever that means to you, yeah. uh he was just so actively harmful last year defensively that I do think that they're gonna put more pressure on him, ride him a little bit harder defensively, and at least the effort will improve. He isn't gonna be good, um, but it won't be quite as bad. And I think if Collins, if Collins improves the way that I think he can to become, you know, not actively harmful, that helps, but then you also lose Deadman and that that hurts too. And you lose Baysmore and guys who are just competent defenders. So I think they can be a little bit better, but I agree. You know, projecting them, you know, you you reference a lot of bad defenses that are out there. I still think this feels like a bottom five defense to me. Maybe maybe they can finish yeah. you know sixth worst or seventh worst based on some other teams, but I can't imagine them being outside of the bottom eight.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think as I'm kind of looking at it right now, they're 27th a the year ago. Like I say, I mean losing Deadman is not help if Bembry plays less. Baysmore, at least you know, I think is was solid. Hey, he, he's he's he's
4: competent defensively. Yeah,
1: yeah. Although I, you know, again, he he had a rough year last year with the injuries and stuff. Um, I'm guessing losing Prince, you're not going to view that as a huge loss. Uh, he he he
4: he was slash is quite bad. So that actually might be a yeah. uh, a feather in their cap to the positive, even if you replace him with a rookie, which they're going to. Um, even as a rookie hunter should be a lot better than Prince has been the last couple of years defensively.
1: Yeah. But I mean, the only teams that I would say they look better than to me right now is maybe Phoenix and Cleveland, Phoenix, Cleveland and Washington. Yeah. That's, that's New York. New York. I'll have to start thinking about them a little bit more, but they've got at least some guys who are okay. So, I mean, I think that's probably your bottom five defenses, which ironically enough your bottom five defenses last year, I think the bulls are going to be better. Uh, Minnesota should be a little bit better. And I don't see anyone who's likely to just, like, completely fall off uh, into the ether here that's uh, above them right now. So, yeah, I mean, I think – so you get that. I think 34 might be a little optimistic for me. You know, I think I'm going to go down in – I I mean, I guess the other thing you can talk about, too, is last year they had – well, they had 29 wins last year? Yes. And uh, point differential of a 27-win team, according to Basketball Reference – so if you're starting as a 27 win baseline, yeah, I mean, I like, I just don't see them being that much better than last year because of like, e- even with the internal improvement, because of just some of the big holes that have been opened up on this team compared to last year. So I think I'll go with 30 wins for this group
4: yeah the the only reason uh, why and it pains me to say it because i love watching this yeah i mean that's not i don't think it's unreasonable at all and the the only honestly the only i'm not sure if it's the only reason that, that i'm going a little bit higher but i'm treating them as the team with collins last year which i think was closer to like a low 30s win team now that that's only a small adjustment but once once collins arrived that's kind of what I'm looking at them as their baseline, but even then, they're going to have to improve to get to 34 wins, even from that group. So I, I don't think you're necessarily crazy on this one.
1: Uh, best case scenario,
4: um, who? I wrote down 42 wins, and that seems like a lot. Um, seems like probably too much. I'm trying to be I'm trying to be optimistic because th- that's what the question asked for. Um, I do think that it would include some stuff that isn't likely to happen, but you know, if the offense is awesome. Like I'm talking top eight offense. That's the only way to do this. It's the only way for them to get to 500 is for them to be just really, really, really good on offense. Cause again, I don't see a realistic path to anything better than bad defense on this team. But you know, if if young, if the post all-star break version of Troy young is real, and he's suddenly averaging 25 and 10 for a full season, that is a thing. Uh, John Collins as well. So I think in the East you could squint and if everything went right, you can get to 41, 42. So I'll, I'll say 42 to be optimistic.
1: Yeah. You know, I think you could see this team with like the eighth ranked offense and the 22nd ranked defense. That, yeah. That might be. And they're playing at a, a close to a top five offensive level with Trey on the floor. Like that's not outside of the realm of possibility. I think I'll go with 41 there. Um, and they probably would make the playoffs with 41. Uh, I think East. I think
4: almost certainly that's going to get in the playoffs this year. Um, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not almost certainly. I think that's likely to get in the playoffs in the East.
1: I mean, it's it, it is crazy like what some of these teams can do in the last month and a half of the season. Like as far like I, I mean, I think it, the like five thirty eight projection was that the eighth seed was going to be like thirty seven wins for probably two thirds of the year, and then everyone just went crazy because the bad teams just. had nothing. It wouldn't uh,
4: surprise me if this, I mean, the Hawks won't do this. I wouldn't project them to do that exact thing, but it wouldn't surprise me given their schedule. And the fact this is going to be a young team. that's going to try at the end of the season with their young players. They could be one of those teams that runs off a 12 and five to finish to get to 38 wins or something like that. That that would not stun me um, when they're, they're kind of out of it, but they're still playing well because they are so young that they don't really have shutdown candidates on this roster. Like that, that seems like a formula that's Fairly, fairly realistic to me where they could actually be one of those teams making the run in March and April maybe tricking everybody for next year but
1: yeah now you could also see them as we get into the worst case scenario in the sweet spot of hey if we lose two more games we can go from the 10th to the 15th in
4: <laughs> yeah I mean la- yeah, last year and- they didn't really tank as hard as people thought they did in fact they, they kind of played you know aside from game 82 when they sat Trey Young um, that was the only time that he sat all season long and he probably could have right. played Um, They really didn't. No, they didn't take. They really didn't take. They could have, and they probably (laughs) should have. In retrospect, because they landed at the eighth pick, and that was actually pretty unlucky. Well, weren't they? Weren't they like? pretty much just in a band
1: with like a couple of wins on either side of that.
4: Yeah, they got they also they also got unlucky in the lottery. They eighth was like yeah, basically basically their floor and that's where they ended up, which was unfortunate. Right. Um but yeah, that that was why they didn't really tank hard, I think, last year and because you have young guys and you want to just play your young guys. I don't I don't think Lloyd Pierce loves to shut it down like that. You know, the year the year before they tanked a lot harder, even even with Budenholzer who didn't like it, they had they had a couple games where they just pulled every plug. But yeah, I'm, I'm, oh, with, yeah. You. I'm with you yeah. on this one. They they don't have the makeup of a, of a tanking team, but considering this is going to, hopefully, if you're a Hawks team, you're hoping this is the last time you'll ever have a lottery pick in this run. So maybe you have even more incentive to shut it down at the end.
1: Yeah. Contra to that is the idea that, well, they want to actually be players in free agency and they don't want to look like shit going to, in a free agency. <laughs> also too. true. Um, so I, I, for worst case, I'll go first here. You know, I think it could be I mean, they had a 27-win point differential last year. You get a few more injuries, especially to Trey Young. I mean, we're not talking about him missing the whole season, but he misses 15 games or something. This could be like 24, 25 wins. You know, I, I, I'll go with 24. Um, but that's, uh, again, much as it pains me to say it, I love the Hawks. I was all over them last year. I love Trey Young. I, As this happens a lot of times with guys I like in the draft, where I'm sort of ahead of them for a long time, and then everyone else, like – catches up and then like they can't stop their momentum they serve like way past me <laughs> and so i'm like well all right i mean i love this guy like I, I see what everyone sees here but like let's slow down you know he had like a good rookie year but just assuming that he's going to take the next linear step and, and you know get in i mean they i it wouldn't shock me if a lot of people say hey you know we expect trey young to be an all-star consideration this year and i think that might be asked in a little too much
4: no i uh, not
1: out of the wrong of possibility but i think For that to be like the most likely outcome seems like too much to me.
4: I totally agree. Um, Particularly, you might imagine that locally, uh, that's almost an expectation is that Trey Young is going to average 20 and 10 and be an all-star this year. Um, I'm not quite there yet either on that, although I I do like him um, quite a bit more now than I did a year ago, so that's a credit to him. Um, Yeah, well, and if he plays
1: 34 minutes a game this year instead of 30, he might get to 10 assists and you know, it would just happen anyway, I mean, and there's honestly, you know, the if East there's is... a
4: way for me to bet on this, I'm going to bet on Trey Young to lead the league in assists and that yeah. I, and I'm not, I'm really not a Homer. I think people can probably can figure that out by this podcast, but, um, honestly, last year, I think he finished second in assists or maybe third, maybe second, second in total assists or yeah, Westbrook was number and, one, and, right. And so. Westbrook is going to Houston where he is not going to generate 11 assists a game or whatever he averaged last year. So I think if you can find Trey Young on like a a fairly long shot price to win the assist title, I would not um, be opposed to recommending that. Just saying.
1: Yeah, no, I guess he might. That's a good point. I'm not sure who else is really.
4: I've done this exercise. There There really isn't an obvious, I mean, maybe Chris Paul, if he plays a lot, but other than that, there really isn't an obvious candidate because you you have to assume that Harden and Westbrook are gonna cannibalize each other a little bit on assist.
1: Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. Yeah, he probably is going to. I mean, especially and, and you know as we've established, the Hawks uh, won't have anyone who will be cannibalized.
4: <laughs> yes, yes, he, he's sure, the only so. option. Um, oh yeah, I was going to ask you before I answered the worst realistic case. We're, we're saying, I guess, semi-normal injury luck. Like we can't. Okay. Yeah. Uh. Okay.
1: Yeah. No. Nobody. I mean, if you know, if there's a guy, you know, John Collins has missed what like 20 games a year the last two years. So I mean, you know, him missing 20 games again wouldn't be uh out of what's been happening before so but you know kind of just guys in line with their previous injury history
4: yeah i think i'm in the same place as you then um you know again if there, are if, if Trey young were to miss half the season all bets are off um but i think with reasonable injury luck you know guys missed 10 20 games here and there i'll say 25 um just because of the defense you know i think maybe not 30th cuz Cleveland is going to be so bad but uh 29th defense is not out of the realm of possibility and if they if they stagger a little bit on offense and are just middle of the pack that that's a recipe to maybe win 25 games so yeah
1: yeah but i think they are going to be a team that has even if they are a little worse than we're expecting they're going to have games where they just go crazy and they beat
4: teams i totally i like, totally agree they're yeah. they're an upside team even within single games we saw it last year and even potentially even more so now they're going to be they they can go out and score 130 and it would not blow anybody away because they play really fast and that also increases variance too with the way that they're playing up and down basketball they could certainly beat almost anyone on any night and they could also lose to anybody on any night they're, that's that's part of the charm i guess of the of this young rebuilding team it's uh, going to be exciting in both good and bad ways
1: so i know you said you had to go soon are you good for one more question absolutely let's go okay it's now what is this year three of the Schlenk era? Yes, this is this is his third summer in charge. Uh, he took yeah he, he took he took over
4: his first draft was John Collins. So yes, what do you think of uh, the regime so far? It's interesting. Um, we talked about this a little bit earlier. I, Travis Schlenk clearly believes in himself, which is a good thing as a scout. You know, he came in; he was a scouting background guy, um, which you might not associate with someone who people didn't really know who he was. He was, uh, I know you know him from Golden State, but he wasn't, he's not an ex player. He's not one of those guys, but he's not, he's not necessarily an analytics guy. He's more of a scout. And I think.
1: He also had a a coaching background as well. Yeah.
4: He's, 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 he's more of a basketball guy than a numbers guy. And I think you can certainly see that in the way that he's approached this. He nailed his first two drafts, essentially. You know, obviously the Luca trey thing is going to follow him around, but at the very least, that is not the disaster that it could have been. Um, trey looks like a real piece, and I would not have done that, trade. and I said that at the time, but Trey looking really, really good early on helps that case, and the previous year, he absolutely nailed the John Collins pick, and then he nailed Kevin Herter as well at 19. So he did really well his first two drafts. I, I, I haven't always loved the process stuff with Schlank. Um, he's made a couple of just complete head-scratching trades. Uh, the Jeremy Lin trade, for, for one, last summer was one that I could not understand in the moment. Um, there's been a few of those, but I think in general, it's been a positive vibe. He's one of those GMs where, you know, they haven't had to win yet, and that gives you more of a more of a leash, I suppose. But, you know, extending him made sense. I'm sure he had a long term deal. I'm not exactly sure what the deal was. It was kind of one of those cloak and dagger situations where you didn't know but adding on more years makes sense because they're still rebuilding but I have to give him a pretty good grade based on the evaluations and the uh, fact that he was going to rebuild because you know, he was hired to, to blow it up and he, and he did that. And I think they, they've done a pretty yeah. effective job of doing that and the groundwork is laid. It hasn't been perfect, but it's certainly been more positive than negative, I think.
1: Yeah, he's a, a difficult guy to evaluate for me as well because, as you mentioned, there are some things that you have to be really, really high on. Now, some of the stuff that I think is kind of easier for GMs, I mean, it, the draft, sometimes, whether you want to say the draft is luck, whether you want to say that there are teams that have drafting skill and some that don't. There there, uh, there is some luck. Yeah. At the
4: very least, there is some luck in yeah. this thing. We have to say that. Yeah,
1: I, I think the, the Pierce hire is looking like it was yep. pretty good. It seemed like exactly what this group needs so far. You know, whether he can take the next step into contention with them remains to be seen. But, you know, I thought pretty much everything that he's done, uh, I've liked to to date. Uh, Talking about Lloyd Pierce now. But, yeah, I mean, some of the, you know, the Lynn trade, just taking on Solomon Hill in that, I mean, that was one that just made no sense at all to me. Taking on Solomon Hill in that New Orleans trade. I mean, to give up probably way more draft capital than you're getting and to trade up for a guy that isn't special, in my opinion, and to also take on, you know, basically, if not a first round draft, I mean, well, I mean, just look at like that. This is before the draft, but you know, Memphis got a first rounder to take on Andre Iguodala, <laughs> who's good, and the Clippers got a first rounder to take on Mo Harkless. Those are guys who can play who are making kind of in the range of Hill, and the Hawks just like took him on just just to do it. I guess I don't know. I mean, it, you know, and, and that's money that could have been used. And, that, and then the Jabari contract, I mean, that's why that could be used to re-sign Dwayne Dedman Yeah, you know, I mean he's and they have commitments going forward from that as well with, with Parker I mean I think if if they had Dedman on this team this year I'd feel much better about their prospects and granted Dedman got a lot of money he got 12 million a year but it was only two years so uh, guaranteed and I don't know if Dedman wanted to stay maybe really wanted to go to Sacramento or something but uh, you know you'd think he would have some interest in sticking around if they paid him the same amount so um there's a lot of things that really are just like total head scratchers from him and i have a concern that we may view this as like his high watermark in terms of our opinion of him and that things could kind of go off the rails a little bit from here but they've got a lot of of resources and that's not to say that this rebuilding project is is no good and he's done he's done a lot to this point so i don't know i mean i i think he's kind of done like a b job so far but it's it's frustrating because with all the good things that he could do if he could have just not done the stuff that was like obviously bad at the time (laughs) then and and, you know there uh, there are some people who would have said the trey young Dre was obviously bad at the time so that's yeah that's uh, maybe being a, a little bit specious reasoning here but if he could have just avoided some of the stuff where i was just like what are you doing there's no rationale for this whatever whatsoever uh then he, he could have had this team in unbelievable position as, as opposed to a merely good position right now. So it's uh he's a bit of an enigma, um, but I do. And I do appreciate the other thing is just, there's no bullshit with Travis. No. Like, like he came in and he was like, hire me because you need to blow this up. You know, I don't care if you made the playoffs last year. So,
4: yeah, no, I, I totally agree I, with, I appreciate I that. I agree with pretty much all of that. I, I, you know, it's, it's been frustrating. I am certainly more, process oriented than a typical person would, would be. And I know you are as well, having listened to your podcast all the time, but you know, the stuff that little stuff can drive you crazy because it isn't so little if you factor it all in. Um, but when you nail the big stuff as he seemingly has so far, and again, so far, because I agree that the high water, it's, it is certainly possible that two years from now, people will not be as high on Travis Lank and the job that he's done. But when you Capitalize on the draft in your first two drafts at the at a bare minimum, and do things um, in a high profile way that worked out for you. You know, it's easy to see why people are enamored with with, with the job that he's done because he, he's done a, he's done a good job. I do think that it would be good if he could minimize some of the process related the process related mistakes that he's made. In my opinion, and I think those have proven to be process related mistakes. But you know, taking the good with the bad, I think it's a, a B job is a good description of what he's done, and I think. As I say this, if people hear this in Atlanta, they're gonna th- they're gonna think that I'm too low on them, and, and I totally understand that. But um, the process stuff just kind of sticks in your craw a little bit with uh, the way that it sometimes has gone.
1: Well, and especially because it's just those draft picks could just be luck, right? I mean, we're yeah, you, we're, it's a I small mean, you, sample. Yeah, yeah, you have even twenty years of sample arguably is not enough to determine like who is a quote unquote good drafter and who isn't.
4: Well, the, know, Spur, the Spurs so. are the famous example, but people just ignore completely all of their misses, <laughs> and they've sure. had a bunch of them. I mean, and they're regarded as being very, very good, but, you know, Travis Link is not going to bat a 1,000 on first-round draft picks, and so far, he's batting a 1,000. So at some point, he's going to miss on some picks, um, and that's okay, particularly if you are in the playoffs and you're missing on late first-round picks instead of lottery picks, or but, you know— We'll see how we'll see how this happens but i I do agree there is certainly a possibility where we look back on this regime and we say man it looked really good early on and it cooled off after that 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 is in play here but we just we just kind of don't know and that's that's not a sexy take by any means but it's kind of the reality and i, I should have mentioned the Pierce hire, too I love Lloyd Pierce I think Lloyd Pierce is very very good didn't didn't talk about him a ton on this podcast but you know and but he's another guy where We've only seen him for a year and I love everything about him but until you see him coach in a playoff game you never know. It's kind of like Budenholzer. It was the same it was the same thing. We I loved Bud, but Bud is not going to not been a great playoff coach so far. He's a he's a program builder and has obviously been very very good in both stops, but there's just things you can't learn until you see guys do things.
1: All right, well this was awesome. Thanks again for joining us and uh we'll have more of our season outlook series coming up uh in a few days. Till then,